Hey, what's up? This is Ray from Teenage Bottle Rocket. You're listening to the Gummy Room. This is the big time, girly. This is rock and roll. everybody, you're in the dummy room. I'm Jody Have Not, joined as always by Mr. Nasty Nate Devil. What's up, dude? Not much. What's hey. up? Hmm. Just freezing to death. <laughs> freezing to death. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm doing really good, man. Actually, I'm just busy, you know? Typical shit. Yeah. Super, super excited about tonight. Yeah, that's going to be great. Um, this is episode 81. 80 fucking one. <laughs> and, uh... Of course, we got Mass from Sonic Iguana, Squirt Gun, Screeching Weasel. You know this guy. Yeah, legend in our little bubble. Beyond legend, you know, he's responsible, or his studio is responsible for, uh, I'd say, at least 50% of the content of our fucking show. Yeah, probably so. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, man. It's, yeah, it's, it's like, uh, that's like where all the bands, that's like Mecca. You go to Sonic Iguana if you want to make a pop punk record, right? Yeah. And have it done um, right and know that it's going to sound great. You know, it's just one of those studios. Yeah, it, the, it's it's earned such a uh, reputation of just sounding good. Where even if you, know, you could just put that on the back, you know, of a record, and yeah. it already sparks a little bit of interest. Like if I were to get like two demos, and you know. Um, the Nick Dick band sends me a, a fucking demo recorded at their in their basement or something over another band who recorded at Sonic. You know which one I'm listening to first. Because right. you know what's going to sound good. The Nick Dick band. <laughs> the Nick Dick band, they're, they're yeah. They're putting out a 12-inch. And then some. That's <laughs> uh, <it's> a 7. <laughs> yeah. 5-inch. It's one of those vindictive 5-inch things. Um, <laughs> no, but everything that I've ever heard out of Sonic Iguana, even the stuff that's, that's not, you know, the good stuff, like sonically good, you know? Yeah. Um, th- well, those are classic records, you know, I'm talking about like love songs and shit, you know? Right. Um, the songs are so good, but I love that production, but yeah, by no means is it, um, you know, Death by Television or something like that. But. Right. Yeah, it was early on before they probably had the greatest Mike Prees and all that kind of stuff. The yeah. Soldano. Yeah, but um, such, I've never been there, you know. I'd love to go there and just, like, kind of be there, you know. It'd be really cool just to be, I know they've had multiple locations or whatever, but right. um, I don't know. It'd just be kind of special to see that shit, you know. Yeah, it's like when Beatles fans go to Abbey Road or something, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like hallowed grounds, you know. Yeah, I guess I understand that then, you oh, know. definitely. Um, I would, that would be fun. Um, but yeah, he, uh, yeah, we've been trying to get him on or talking about getting him on for a long time. So I, I'm the last week I've been, I fucking put on squirt gun quite, you know, more often than I normally do. Fucking squirt guns. Great. Great oh, yeah. band. Oh yeah. No um, 
I mean, the dude's re- had his hands in the like, you know, like we were just alluding to. Almost every record we talk about on here, he had something to do with it, whether it was mixing, <laughs> mastering, producing, engineering, playing on it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So this is gonna be awesome, dude. Yeah, and I don't think he's not really involved with too much anymore. It doesn't seem like so. Yeah. Um, but his name's already made. I mean, I, I don't really, I don't think of like producers, engineer guys, you know, very much, you know. Right. Um, the the ones that I know are, you know, him because he did everything. Kevin Army because he did all the early lookout shit, and uh, Justin, my buddy Justin. Yeah. Uh, who's done a shit ton after Mass, you know. Right. Um, but yeah, other than that, but Mass is by far like the guy. Oh, definitely. You want to get yeah. into it? Let's get into it. Um. Yeah. Let's get into it. Let's. Yeah. Let's do it now. Cool. Coming up next, we got a guest. We got a guest coming up next. Coming up next, we got a guest. We got a guest coming up next. All right, we're here with Master Genie. Um, yeah, how's it going? Thanks so much for uh, for including me in this, guys. I've been listening to your show and heard lots of my friends on it. Uh, you know, Phil Hill, who was my roommate for a few years, and Zach Damon was my roommate, and um, Dan Panic, who drums in my band, and I recorded a million times. Basically, tons of people I know really well have been on your show, and so it's it's, it's cool to be here too. Right on. Well, we're super stoked yeah. that you're here, man. You've done so much stuff, you know, over the years that we just totally love. So we're really excited you're here. So welcome, man. Let me ask you this: When we have we've had a you know, like you said, like a bunch of your friends. So when Phil Hill comes on, you know, we introduce him as uh, uh, Phil Hill of, of Teen Idols and Queers and Screech and Weasel and Common Rider, and of course we we mentioned uh, Sonic Iguana stuff. But for you, I'm wondering what's more important. Like, do you would you want to be remembered as you know, Mass from Sonic Iguana or like Squirt Gun? What's what's the most <sighs> yeah important thing for you? Like, what do I want my legacy <laughs> to be? Um, yeah. yeah, that's that's tricky. I would say in music, what I feel like my legacy is is my my role as a producer, um, and I spent more time doing that than anything. I, that's not, you know, I didn't set out to be that. I I loved playing punk rock bands, and in fact, I mainly I started recording because I felt like there needed to be, you know, someone out there dedicated to punk rock that really understood it and. Um, that way I could record my band the way I thought it needed to be recorded and I could record other bands. And that was pretty much my, the whole impulse that got me going in the production side was more practical. Like I need to be able to produce to create the album I want to create because this sound I have in my head doesn't exist out there. (laughs) And, and, and that was pretty much what drove me. So it wasn't like, Oh, I want to be a producer as much as like I need to be so I can get what I want to get done as a band. Um, but as time went on, you know, I, I learned a lot by producing as well. I mean, I, I didn't formally study music in the sense of going to music school or taking lots of music theory classes, but by being in the studio and working with bands, like I'd say, well, that's off key. Um, you know, and, and I could tell that, you know, with the music that was playing and, and then they'd say, well, how I'm like, well, you're a little above the note which I, I know means sharp, but like if they had asked me for the theory of, well, what's the scale, what the notes are, I wouldn't have been able to tell them anything between a Phrygian mode and an ionic. And, right. <laughs> you know, I, I, but now, even now, I, I would say that I have more of a functional understanding. Like I can understand 
you know, melodic songs pretty well, whether they're melodic minors or melodic majors. And, and if they're changing keys and I can tell, yeah, you're playing the seventh and I know it's in key, but the lead singer is singing the eighth. In other words, the octave of the root right. note and you guys are a half step apart. And so it sounds like a, a car horn. So you can't do that. They're like, well, it's in scale. Yeah, I get it. You're in the scale, but you can't play those two notes at the same time. You know? yeah. And so I could, I know things like this and I can explain the reason, even though I'm, you know, if you put me in a room with a person who's a, an actual music theorist, I can't talk like they do, you know, <laughs> Just, right. but, but it was a really cool instructional tool for me by practically listening. Um, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of lucky. I've got some strange ears. Um, and, this is partly physically true as well. I, I grew up with really bad ear infections, and my eardrums had to be sliced open. It was before the days of tubes. And so what's happened is that, and they even said, oh, you might have hearing damage when you're older and all this kind of stuff, or you may not, never be able to develop full-on hearing. And who knows? Maybe it's not as full range as it could be. But what's true is my ears really hurt when certain frequencies get pushed too loud. And so because I'm so sensitive to that, <laughs> it helps me avoid certain things in mixes. And, and, and I know it sounds crazy, but it, it's, it's one of these things that I think I developed by accident. Like, no, I don't like the sound of that. It's just too brash. And by luck, the notes that are brash to me are the same kinds of things you don't want to push in a mix. <laughs> hmm. So where is it at for you? Like 4K or what? Well, it's kind of funny. It's more of a, a, a little bit lower okay. mid than that. It's more like near the vocal range. Like, um, for example, if you were to imagine sort of a very loud um, megaphone, yeah, um, that piercing sort of weird mid, not not the sibilant side of the vocal, but like okay. that sort of middle tone. Like that honky um, mid? Where, yep, that honky mid really gets to me and in fact it doesn't sound good and it makes if you've got that push too loud i mean for an effect in a little section because you want to give the impression of a megaphone but even then you don't want it to be too loud you just right. want it to be audible so i feel like some of these weird things that are accidents have actually been kind of cool cool and beneficial to me but the the bottom line was i would get bands in the studio who were trying to sing together and um, I had a, I, I mean, my career has been a very wide range of musical abilities um, that I've worked with. <laughs> Some people come in and they know music, you know, yeah, um, and they can hit and they can play their instruments and they can sing. Um, but that's kind of the rare bird, you know. In punk rock, the whole aesthetic is you're a bunch of dudes that are buddies and you pick up your instruments and you go to the garage and you make noise, you know. So yeah. it's not really the kind of genre that necessarily tries to call the herd and and, and and have the most slick musicians all the time, which means they don't know music theory either. And a lot of times I'm explaining that in the studio and saying, well, okay, you know, for example, uh, three guys in a band, they're all trying to sing. They're all wanting to sing together because they want to sound like, you know, the Beatles or, or something they heard on the Weezer album or, or whatever the heck is influencing that particular song or sound they're trying to go for. They think, oh, if we all three sing together, it's going to sound like the Beatles. I'm like, well, they didn't all sing the same note. Right. You know, they all sung three different notes and they made yeah, like a third a chord. above, fifth below. <laughs> yeah. And I know that sounds obvious to anyone who knows music, but if you haven't studied music and you just picked up a guitar at a garage sale and, you know, <laughs> it, it may not be as immediately clear to you. And I right. have, I've had a lot of people like that. And, you know, I uh, I think it's been fun, though. It's been a really fun ride for me so far because I've gotten to work with such a variety of people. And then there's you know some people that 
I'll bring one up as an example who I just think was born with music in them. Um, Dan Vapid. Um, you know, he's not the kind of guy that studied music. He listened to music and loved it. Um, since he was very young and you put a guitar in his hand and if you just sit there for a minute and don't talk and leave a guitar in his hand and he's sitting there, he will write a song on the spot. And I'm telling you, the melody will be good. (laughs) The lyrics will fit rhythmically and rhyme and it'll sound cool as heck. And it just comes out of him. It's like, he's someone that oozes music and it's, you know, I I would call him one of the most natural musical, you know, maybe I, I hate to overuse the word genius, but he's, you know, in, in music, he has a gift, you know, and, um, and people like that are really cool to work with, you know, and then there's other ones that kind of struggle and bash and try to get through something. And it's a lot harder for them. You know, it's, it, it's, you could tell that there are some people that have these gifts of certain things and it's, it's all different. Like for example, Ben Weasel, who I worked with a lot, you know, many, many mm-hmm. years, I wouldn't say, you know, and I'm sure he wouldn't say that he's the world's most gifted singer as far as just vocal ability and natural tone and all that kind of thing. There's no denying he has a, a very unique tone that uh, many people enjoy, you know, because that sort of snarly kind of snotty edge to his voice has a charm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not knocking that part of it at all. But he knows music. So even if it may not sound like the kind of you know he doesn't sound like frank sinatra is what i'm getting at <laughs> he doesn't have that kind of voice but man does he know music um in the sense of he may not want you to say the letter c to refer to a note because he doesn't like that kind of thing he prefers to you know if the, if the first note's on the e string and on the seventh fret he'll call it e7 you know or <laughs> if it's on the third fret of the A string, it's A3 instead of saying, you know, B or C, you know, Um, (laughs) that's the way he talks, you know, but that doesn't mean he doesn't know music. Like if he has a melody in his head, he can sing the melody. And then if you try to play it on the guitar and you're off by a fret, he'll go, no, 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 up a fret. And he'll know it just like that. Like he's one of the most, I don't know, specific um, people I've ever seen with knowing exactly where the note should sit um, when he hears it. So, I mean, you know, it's a gift, you know, I wouldn't say that, you know, um, everyone has everything, you know, there are people that have very certain kinds of talents, but when you see them, it's really fun to appreciate those kinds of things and say, wow, that is cool, you know? Yeah. (laughs) And I, I feel like I've been really lucky. I, I've gotten to work with so many people that fit in those kinds of categories. I mean, um, for example, Dan Lumley on the drums. He's got rare gifts on the drums. I mean, I don't hear people mention him often, but I think part of the reason is because he's one of those transparent drummers who listens to the song and does everything he can to make the song work the way it should without showing off. <laughs> you know? yeah, right. and, and I mean... And Dan Panic's a similar kind of drummer. They they are people who um, don't necessarily want to star. They want to make the band sound solid. And that's, you know, in the end, who wants someone's going to go back there with 17 roto toms and <laughs> start doing peel downs in the middle of nowhere, you know, that don't, that don't support the chorus, you know? Right. So, <laughs> yeah. 
So let yeah, me sorry, I'm yakking a lot. So you yeah. feel free to jump in and ask me yeah. questions. Otherwise, I'll talk all night. <laughs> let, me, let me ask you this: of, of all your um, of all your friends that you've worked with and produced, like um, I, like who's the hardest? Not not who's the biggest asshole, but who's kind of like the hardest because they already, you know, I should say maybe maybe the easiest. Like they already know what they want and you, they're stubborn about it or something like that. Oh, that's a really tough one. Um, sometimes sometimes knowing what you want and really going for it is, in my opinion, um, difficult for a producer who feels they know better in some cases. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, for example, I was uh, at the beginning of my production career, if you want to call it that, when I started producing. It feels odd to call it a career, but... Um, at the beginning of my producing experience, my main gist of, of, of like sort of like a slogan, like the gist of my slogan would have been this, do what the artist wants. Try to get what they want. And that was my entire, entire goal. But now I've learned over the years that sometimes what they think they want <laughs> isn't really what they want. <laughs> like, for example... Um, I could come up with some different things. And I, I actually heard you talking on the other side of this one. It was kind of funny um, on the Dan Panic interview. Um, the snare sound for Stormy Streets. Yeah. Um, there probably were 20 better ways to get that sound than what we did. Um, and the reason it sounds somewhat passable and people like it is because it took the most ridiculous amount of work ever, ever done in my entire career <laughs> to mix it in the snare drum in the mix. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was seriously difficult because basically what we did was we de- detuned the snare all the way so the legs were rattling, threw a t-shirt on it. Yeah. And, and that was because pretty much that was what Ben thought he wanted, which I, I know what he really wanted. He wanted to match the sound from Rocket to Russia. Yeah the snare so i did my best to match it but it took a lot of crazy mix stuff like the most wild eqs you've seen sending it out through a gate and then through a compressor and then through this other thing and then oh my gosh to make it sound like it does on the album was the most circuitous and unnatural route ever um so in in spite of how badly recorded it was it came out okay Yeah. 
so at that point in time, I was still thinking, okay, service, you know, whatever the artist wants. And um, now I'm like, okay, listen to the artist, figure out what they really, really want. And you map the route there and say, this is the best way to get there. But be somewhat strong about expressing that opinion because you're the expert, <laughs> you know? <Yeah>. So <laughs> now I'm a lot better about that. I, I'm not saying I would argue with an artist about the end product because that's what they're the artist. They, they know what they want in the end and we agree to that before they start recording. But maybe the way to get there sonically should be my, you know, my territory, you know, yeah. <laughs> like I understand where you want to get, I'll get you there, but let me get you there the way that I know works. And so I, as time has gone on, I've gotten more of that opinion. I still think the artist is right that they should have what they want in the mix. Don't get me wrong. I still yeah. think that's the case. Cause that's what they're the songwriter. Um, but, I feel like I'm the one that knows how to get there better because that's what I've been doing for 25 years. <laughs> so, you know, I, so now I'm a little more assertive um, and, uh, and, and, and can, you know, manage that better. What with Ben, it's a little bit tougher. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not telling you anything new to say that he can be a little bit of a challenging personality. Um, you've probably heard that at various points. <laughs> um, but, you know, the truth is he is someone who knows what he wants. He's got a good vision. He's a really good songwriter. And when he's on fire, there's no one better. I mean, he's just, he's got an immense amount of talent. And that talent um, is not necessarily an engineering talent or, you know, being able to sculpt the tones. He might have a good producing year. I'm not going to argue with that. He's got a good idea of what he wants for the final product. But I mean, as far as knowing the technical side of how to get to that sound, I mean, he hasn't lived in a studio and played with mics, you know, it's like everyone's got expertise in what they do, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes that could be challenging. And, and, and I think part of the challenge was because he was so certain of what he wanted. There were some times he took his hands off and pretty much just said, mask, do, do your thing, you know what you're doing. And the one time he completely did that, like completely said, just do what you're doing and you take care of it with major label debut. And that's the best sounding screeching weasel album that I worked on. You <laughs> 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 Were you a Screeching Weasel fan like before you recorded them ever? Or did, were you introduced to them when they came down to record? Oh, no. I met them years before that. Um, okay. I met them in... Um, we first talked on the phone in 87. They sent me a demo tape because they wanted to come and play a club that I ran in Indiana. It was an all-ages club in Lafayette called Spud Zero. And we did shows for tons of bands like Dag Nasty, Naked Ray Gun, um, and big bands of the time that you hear about less now, like Zero Boys, Toxic Reasons. Um, but these were all 
bands that were pretty huge in the punk scene back then, like yeah. Toxic Reasons was on um, Alternative Tentacles, and you know, uh, Dag Nasty was basically the next step of the Minor Threat story, and mm-hmm. you know, yeah. it was you know, uh, it went kind of went Fugazi and, and Dag Nasty kind of divided on that path, but. At any rate, so I had a lot of that kind of stuff going on. Those guys contacted me, sent a demo tape. And then I heard through Matt Hart, um, who was later the singer of Squirt Gun, mm-hmm. um, he said, hey, you know, I met a girl at um, theater camp um, named Portia, who ended up later on being Ben's wife. And she, she said her boyfriend's in this band called Screeching Weasel, and they'd like to play there. So since I got a recommendation from Matt and I got the tape, I reached out and I talked to Jughead and then Ben, and then I booked them, and they came down in early 88. Um, as soon as I heard the record, because the, the record wasn't out the first time we talked, it came out right as they were coming down to play in Lafayette. I loved it, the first record, even though I know, compared to later records, it's kind of <laughs> primitive. But, but it was something cool. It had a cool spark. It had something unique about it, you know? And yeah. the, sort of the promise of Screeching Weasel was there. Like, Murder in the Brady House is sort of a... Right. You know, kind of a sneak peek at what they were going to become, you know? Yeah, yeah. loving that record and we we ended up uh, doing stuff together like we played shows around the midwest with my old band rat tail grenadier which is basically squirt gun with a different singer right um there's only one song of ours that people really got to know and it was um from the punk usa comp that ben put yeah. together for lookout um the song called come on back that was on there it was the same comp that had like jawbreaker and yeah. 
mm-hmm. queers and it's parasites. I think great comp. Yeah. No parasites. So, I don't know if parasites were on. Right no, no. no. Moral crooks and pink Lincoln. Moral crooks. That's it. Termites. That's and, yeah. Termites. Yeah. 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 So there were, you know, a lot of really cool bands on that. And he put us on there, and basically we just switched singers. You know, the we got Matt Hart to sing instead of Quentin, um, and uh, that was Squirt Gun. So, so anyway, that relationship was built early on, and they really wanted to start a label. They didn't have money. Jughead and Ben, um, and I knew a guy who had money and wanted to start a label, but didn't know what to do or who to sign. So I kind of put them together. Uh, and they started Roadkill Records, which released Boogada Boogada. Right. Um, and they also released uh, the first Rat Tail Grenadier album. Um, so we were label mates then. Um, in fact, when we recorded uh, the Rat Tail Grenadier album in 1988, uh, Ben and John came down and were there in the studio with us. <laughs> so this is how long we go back, you know. Wow. <laughs> like, we go way back. And then what happened was when the second Rat Tail Grenadier album was recorded. I produced it completely by myself. And we were playing some shows. Because we played together some shows when they were doing Anthem for New Tomorrow. Well, that's later. Um, right after they did My Brain Hurts, yeah. And they were touring. We did some shows together. And I gave them a CD of my ba- the second album of Rat Tail Grenadier. They loved the way it sounded. I told them I recorded it. And they came and did Wiggle with me. So by the time we did Wiggle, we'd already known each other several years. Okay. So yeah, it's a it's a really long relationship, and even like me playing in the band, even though I didn't formally join, I think until '97. But I was already playing on some other stuff earlier. Like I played on that "Susanna's Getting Married" single. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I played on the B side, "The Waiting for Susie." It's a good one. Yeah, yeah weren't you based on that one? So. Weren't you? Yeah, Mike, you were kind of replaced by Mike Durrant, right, for that record, and then. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, weird, I wasn't but... actually in the band yet. No, um, you're okay. I was kind of fill in for them for the record. Um, they had asked me if I would, and I said, "Sure, yeah, I can do it." You know, while I'm recording, you know, I'll, I'll do it. And then what happened was, between the time we talked about it and actually started recording, um, my father's health took a real turn for the worse, and um, they ended up dedicating that album to my dad. I don't know if you've seen the original mm-hmm. release, but it says. On the, on the very back of the record, it says, dedicated to the memory of a great man, Aldo Giorgini. Yeah. Um, and that's right across the back of the album. And what happened was my dad was doing so poorly that I, I really didn't have time to also learn all the songs and everything else. And I knew it was going to be a problem. We were talking about it. And then Ben was like, well, I'll just ask Mike Dern to do it. Why not? You know? Um, and so I played on the one, the one song because we recorded it earlier. Um, and I think I recorded on another song, like an early version of Nightbreed back then. Mm. Something like that. But I wasn't like the permanent bassist. I was just filling in. And then um, Mike ended up doing the album and I produced it. Um, and, and then later on, you know, <laughs> yeah, later on it happened again that they needed a bassist. And so I got called again. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it, it it's a very long story, though. I mean, like I say, Screeching Weasel my involvement with the band, even though as a producer, it might've been 17 years roughly between producing and mastering and, and remixes and things of that sort um, in the band nine years, but we were working together longer. I mean, I was there pretty close to the very beginning of the band. I met the very first lineup um, that, you know, the very first album lineup, second lineup. I mean, I, I knew all the lineups of the band, you know, 
from the beginning on because I was that closely involved until now. Like now I'm not really very aware of what's going on anymore. You know, I'm not in regular contact with Ben or anything. We did something together not long ago, the 30th anniversary. I played a few songs with them for that, you know, mm-hmm. um, but we're not in super regular contact anymore, Mm-mm. but we were, <laughs> I was yeah. the best man at his wedding, you know, <laughs> cool. <laughs> So were they, what do you, you know, Sonic Iguana kind of took off like mid nineties, mid to late nineties. What do you think? Like, was it Screeching Weasel? You think that, that got all that, you know, business to you just, well, um, were they the first um, big band to record there? Here's something to fact check, um, which I've never been able to disprove. I think Sonic Iguana is the first studio that opened like as a public studio with the purpose of being a punk rock studio in the world. Mm. I can't think of anyone before. Um, you know, I know the Sex Pistols recorded 14 years earlier, but they didn't record at a punk rock studio. They recorded <laughs> at a major label studio that recorded everyone, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, and that was pretty much the way it went. Some of the early DIY bands in LA did some stuff in small home studios, but not like an open commercial studio. So I think Sonic Iguana was the first full-on punk studio we started tracking, I first started experimenting with recording in 88, um, but I didn't actually open to the public until 91. I was doing recording in the ni- in 90. Um, but the first record besides my own band that I did that actually had distro was Wiggle. And I think I did that in 92. I think hmm. I did it in 92. It was, and it was when I was still in that like artist knows best kind of phase and um the the tapes would go i would make a mix put it on a cassette tape which is of course already unreliable send it in the mail some tapes would go to john some would go to ben um i think ben had a slightly better home stereo john was sitting on a jam box or something but they couldn't hear the highs so they kept telling me oh turn up the cymbals i can't hear the cymbals and in the end the symbols are ridiculous on that record, the original press. <laughs> yeah. Like they're really sizzly because they kept saying they wanted more highs, they wanted more highs, but it's because they had bad cassette decks and bad stereos, and they weren't hearing what I was hearing in the studio. And I kept thinking, "Oh, this is not good. This is too much." And I would tell them that, but at the time, I didn't have the, you know, the assertiveness that I developed later, where I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, I know what, I know what I need to do here," <laughs> you know, um, like you know, because. If you've got cotton in your ears and you're listening, you can't expect it to sound like when you're in a studio listening to good speakers, right? So, right. Um, so yeah, that that was a that was kind of a, a weird first record of a big level, but but for whatever reason, people really liked it. Mainly the guitar tones I got and uh, the drums, and it caught on, and people started coming down like in waves from Chicago. Like um, Eighty Eight Fingers Louie was one of the bands that started coming down. Um, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Bull Weevils, and then later uh, Smoking Popes. Um, you know, so a lot of the Chicago scene started coming, and then even bands that were on tour that had heard about me from sort of the other scene, because it was the maximum rock and roll pop punk scene, which is basically the lookout scene, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and then there was the flip side, which was like this more sort of like muffs, um, Muffs mm-hmm. were the most straight pop punk band out of that scene, but there were a lot of other bands that were a little bit more weird and experimental and noise and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, that were into the in the flip side scene. So that's where I made my first contacts with those 
um, LA people too. So I had sort of two waves coming at once, sort of the lookout driven scene. And then I also had some like harder bands, like um, there was born against, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> bands like that too. Yeah. Um, so it was a, it was a pretty wild ride right there at the beginning um, that ramped up. But to say that screeching weasel was a driver would have to be true because they were the first band beside my own um, that that actually came and did a record that got some distro. Um, so that made a huge difference. Um, and they got me back in with Lookout. I, I was already kind of connected to Lookout Records because I'd put on a show with um, Operation Ivy in 88 when, on their only tour. Hmm. And they played that same club I talked about. And I stayed up really late at night talking with Jesse. In fact, <laughs> that came back again because I ended up playing with him in Common Rider. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that was in 88, but when we started Common Rider, it was more like 98, I think, yeah. something like that. So uh, 10 years passed, and he was kind of out of the music scene for a most most of that time. And then he came back, and we worked together. And so it's kind of a funny thing. Like A lot of the stuff keeps going in waves and i mean heck i mean i just wrote an email to jesse this morning and <laughs> we're still talking you know so it's cool. like one of these things where a lot of these people i haven't seen in years still are in my life in one way or another <laughs> That's awesome. yeah hey i got a question for you mass yeah okay so like when in the timeline of sonic iguana did the classic fucking soldano come into the picture that was later um the soldano which by the way i think was a turning point sonically for me because I felt like I'd gone as far as I could with the tone that I'd gotten for say uh, screeching weasel or even the first squirking album, which we were using a solid state Ampeg. I think it was called like the VH one forty or something like that. And it was kind of a classic solid state metal amp. It was getting used by a lot of the death metal, the early death metal bands because it had this crazy over the top distortion. Like, you could go nuts with it. We never used it that way with Screeching Weasel or Squirt Gun, but you could get really nuts with the distortion. And it sounded, yeah. for a solid-state amp at the time, it was head and shoulders better than any other solid-state guitar amp. Um, but it's solid-state, which is a very limiting thing for a guitar. Basically, you can't get a good guitar tone. Right. This is my opinion. I'm very biased. Without a really <laughs> good tube amp. Yeah, you got to have some tubes. And so we switched to tubes pretty early, you know, like after the... And when I say early, I mean right after the Squirkin album, we switched to Marshalls. Um, and then there were the 900s at that time that were really yes. big. Yeah. And they were pretty new. And they were like, eh, kind of thin, you know. I mean, probably still an improvement over that solid state amp, but not necessarily like an obvious blow you away one. Then I was on tour um, with a band you may or may not have heard of called the Potato Men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the lead Larry singer was Larry Livermore. Yep. You know, that was his band. And I was playing bass for them, and we played, this is early 95, like maybe January 95, and we played in Corvallis, Oregon, uh, I think to a really huge audience of like 21 people or something like that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the other band on the bill was Zoinks. And, nice. okay. and so I met Zach that night, and um, he was playing in a Soldano Hot Rod 50, which is became sort of the staple of Sonic One. I heard that and I go, that is the best sounding amp I've ever heard anywhere in person, anywhere. And I was telling them him that over and over again. So I took all the notes down about what kind it was. I went home and bought one. <laughs> and 
And later on, funny coincidence, my brother ended up playing in a band with Mike Soldano. You know, all coincidences. Hmm. In fact, you might have heard of uh, GPC, the guitar punk yeah. uh, yep. series of guitars that my brother ran. He His factory or main warehouse, whatever you want to call it, was mainly a warehouse because they were built in Korea and he would sort of hot rod them or do the final phases of finessing them in the, when they got to the, his bench. But um, that was in the, the same building of Soldano Guitars. Okay. Soldano Amps. Yeah. Hmm. So, yeah, so... That it, but that's a coincidence that that happened. I mean, um, I started using the guitar amp right after that, so that would have been '95. Okay. Um, but it was already too late for the Squirkin album because we'd already finished tracking it. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the Squirkin album was tracked in '93, and it didn't come out till '95 because we were taking care of my father who had brain cancer, um, mm -hmm. and we just kind of put the album on the back burner. Um, we had already they were going to sign us already at lookout larry had already agreed to put us out but um we didn't want to have to go out and tour on something with my dad in that in that condition so we put it off for two years although it would have been the best thing in the world for us had it come out in 93 so when green day exploded in 94 <laughs> one of the first times you would have <laughs> seen on lookout would have been ours right so um, yeah yeah it probably would have been better for us but i i still think we did the right thing and um Unfortunately, though, we missed out on that Soldano tone on that first record, and then by the time we did the second Squirkin album, I was already using that amp, amp for everyone, and of course, I used that amp also for the Lillingtons and right. um, Death by Television's got, you know, you could tell that's the Soldano for sure, it's a big thick time. wall of guitar, you know, mm -hmm. um, it's only a 50 watt, it's not like, you know, high powered one, but it doesn't need to be for a studio recording, you know, live you might want to have 100 watts, but we did it with the 50 and that amp became my staple in fact even later when i started using some mesa boogies like uh, rise against when i did them um which is the biggest selling album i ever worked on is the rise against unraveling album um that which i think it's about to go gold if it hasn't already um it's it's done really well that one is one channel solana one channel mesa boogie if i remember correctly um Actually, Dan Bolklinski could probably <laughs> correct me. Maybe we used two mesas, but one of them was definitely my mesa. <laughs> and then, um, um, like Anti Flag, we did the same thing: one mesa, one Soldano. Um, so a lot of these bigger albums I worked on, I was doing that. And then also with Screeching Weasel, that switch happened around that same time. You know, like Barked Like a Dog. You can tell. Wow, for the first time ever, Screeching Weasel's got a good guitar sound. <laughs> 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 and I credit that. Partly that I had a better taste with with it, the sound, partly that I insisted on with using my Soldano, right. and partly that I set the amp. Like, the guitarist, I mean, basically I got to the point where I set the amp. You can give me a yes or no, or you want a little more of this or a little more of that, but I'm setting your amp, you know? And I pretty much got to that <laughs> point really early, because I figured out, like, I know what I need out of the guitar, and... Right. Sure, if you want to tweak a little bit here, a little bit there, a little more distortion, a little less, a little more high, great. But the basic body of it, I want to decide, you know. And, I, and you know, I think that was a good step because if people are entrusting their recording to me, flying from other countries or driving across the U.S. to come and record with me, they're coming to me because they liked something I did and they trust my sound. So if I don't express my opinion and tell them what i think we need to do then i'm actually not giving them what they asked for right, right. <laughs> so so i started to look at it less like 
I'm being bossy or commanding and more like, no, this is what they want. They want my opinion, so I'm giving it to them. And then in the end, of course, if any band insisted, like, we have to do it this way, I'm like, well, okay, then, you know, you're, <laughs> you're, you're the boss in the end because it's your art, you know? So, um, but no, I think, it, I think it needed that. And I think the Soldano was a big part of the secret for, like, this huge leap in sound. Like, if you compare, like, uh, the early Weasel and Squirk on record and Queer's record to mm -hmm. what happened after I got Soldano's. I mean, yeah. it's, it's night and day. <laughs> it really is. And there was another change. Um, the drum sounds. Um, yes. I had uh, several locations of the studio, but when I moved to um, this one studio where I actually built the whole room my way, like I had no parallel surfaces in the drum room, that's when the drum sounds really opened up and got better. Um, so like another sunny afternoons drum sound is way better than than the first Squirkin album, for example. That's yeah. just one example. Or Monkey Brain, um, the queers. You know, whether or not you like the songs as much as Love Songs for the Retarded, there's no doubting it sounds 20 times better. Sounds better, yeah, <laughs> yeah. for sure. objectively say that you know yeah um so th there are things like that 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 improve like the the drum room i had um i had better mics i had better preamps um, i also learned more you know I, by doing so much recording i started learning what i wanted to get out of the sounds and i i feel like i, I got lucky early in some ways people trusted me like when um 
um, the uh, when Jerry Finn was mixing Dookie. Um, at some point, like he, w- it was his first album he mixed out of recording school. Wow! And he was talking to the guys in Green Day, <laughs> and they already knew who I was. And basically, um, they said, "Well, you might want to talk to Mass." And so he calls me up and he says, "Hey, Mass, what do I do about the guitar sound?" Of course, this is before the internet, so I couldn't just say, "Send me a file over; I'll listen to it." You know, <laughs> it wasn't that easy. It was like he was talking about what he heard in the the guitar. He told me what kind of cab they had, what kind of speaker. Um, we talked for a long time. I said, well, I'm guessing that what you're going to want to do is cut some low mids to get the tone you want and not boost the highs so much because that's going to make it sound artificial. So let's scoop out what you don't want. And I'm guessing what you don't want is around 400. So he actually scooped out 400 (laughs) (laughs) and um, sent me a tape of it. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds pretty good to me. That sounds great. And he went with it. And so, you know, even though I'm not credited on the Dookie album or any other Green Day album, because I didn't work on any Green Day albums, I worked with the guys in Green Day on other albums, you know, um, that that's, I had an influence, I guess, in, in, in a pretty cool record, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you imagine was, that being your first record, though? Everything's downhill from there for the rest of your career. Yeah, I guess that would be tough. <laughs> he did work on some great stuff, you know. I mean, he had a career. Unfortunately, he died very young. He died like ten years ago. Oh. But um, he got to work on a lot of cool, cool stuff and you know, stuff that sounds better technically. Because really, even though Dookie is a great record, and and it sounds like a real punk record coming out for the first time, that sounds pretty slick in my opinion. It's like one of the first modern punk records that sounds good. It sounds great, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, you compare it to the recording of American Idiot, and it's like, one sounds a little bit like a really good, you know, reco- guy that's recording in a pretty cool local studio versus, like, super slick, you know, major label, <laughs> you know, right. throwing all the money out. Of course, the budget was probably 15 yeah. or 20 times bigger, <laughs> you know, but but I, I love Dookie, and so and I, I consider it kind of a, uh, really, it's a landmark album in punk rock, you know, yeah. you know? Even if you're not a pop punk fan and and you hate everything that pop punk re- represents, you can't deny the influence that Dookie had Huge. on the history of punk rock. <laughs> yeah, there's so, no denying it. L- let me ask you: How many people, you know, back in the day, or even you know, throughout Sonic's career, how many people come there to record with you and end up just like? wanting to pick your brain and just oh my goodness waste time chatting about you know <laughs> all the shit that you've done and gear talk a lot um <laughs> and and it's gotten more and more so but like even like early on i remember when i was touring with squirt gun um 95 still maybe later in 95 yeah it was a little later in 95 so it wasn't our first tour our album had come out uh, we played a co-headline stretch of shows on that tour with um, Blink-182. So some nights they would play last, other nights we would play last. We just took turns. Um, and even those guys, the first night, they're like, what's Ben Weasel like? <laughs> what, what was it like to record this this song? What kind of guitar amp did you use? Those dudes were totally fanboying over the Screeching Weasel recordings. <laughs> cool. Of course, you know, that was when Blink-182 was still pretty new. They weren't huge yet or anything. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, it was it's long before they broke through to the mainstream. But, you know, even... That's when I really first got hit with that little crazy, like sort of over-the-top fanboy kind of thing that that happened at shows. Um, was really with Blink One Eighty Two and them being the fanboys, which is kind of not what you would expect from me to say, <laughs> sure. But um, 
that was pretty much the first time. And then from then on, there's been a little bit of it, but it seems like really the last 10 years or so, um, it's become more and more of a thing because half the reason people have come to record with me is because of all the records they grew up on. And so yeah. they see them on the wall and they're asking about all the different records or the people and the bands. And so it did start to become a, a bigger thing. But like I said, lately, um, I know we didn't actually get this on tape yet, but um, I've shifted more and more towards the mastering and mixing side of the business, you know, because it works better with all the things that I want to be involved. And I did a PhD in Spanish and um, I do a lot of like uh, research in that and uh, a lot of like forensic research and things like that with language. And I really, I, I love that stuff too. And so since I'm trying to do more than one thing at a time, it's worked out better for me to do more of the mixing and mastering. That doesn't mean I don't produce anymore. It just means I produce <laughs> less than I did. Right. <laughs> no. Like this year I did, I did one album that I've produced from beginning to end. Um, and all the rest has been mastering and mixing. Like I just mastered a new album for um, Anti-Flag that's coming out in January. I'm really proud of how that turned out. It's called 2020 Vision. Super political. It's Anti-Flag. Of course. Know? Yeah. Um, and they're my biggest regular client, obviously. I mean, they're a rather, rather large band that is like usually a semi-headline to headline act of a lot of festivals. So they're definitely my biggest regular client. Um, but I also really like that music. And even though nobody in the pop punk scene would ever call them a pop punk band, they've got hooks for days. I mean, <laughs> they've got some of the best melodic lines ever but because it's so political and there's a lot of screaming mixed in i think a lot of pop punk fans don't really connect with them as much even though um i find it to be like a pretty cool thing because i grew up listening to a lot of clash and sex pistols where there's a lot of politics in it as well not just the ramones i love the ramones too but i also like the clash and the sex pistols so for me that that kind of element's cool to have you know um um but anyway, yeah, yeah. Uh, I know I'm going off on a tangent again, but you're good. Um, I, I I tend to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a time, you know, I don't know. You're not as active like you're saying, but when every band wanted to record at Sonic Iguana, we know that, um, and of course they wanted you to do it, but um, yes. you can't. So when you when you bring in guys like like Phil Hill or, or Zach, does it does it kind of help you out instead of? You know, because Sonic Iguana's name is going to be on the back of the record, and they want Mass on the back of the record, but, but they can't. But you think, you know, having like Phil Hill kind of was a good, uh, I don't want to say, you know, second guy for you, but you know what I'm saying? Like, well, people were disappointed they couldn't have you, but, I, you know, the next I best would, thing. I would say if anybody was disappointed by Phil Hill, they're. They're crazy. You know? No, he's, but you know what I mean. I mean, he's talented, dude. I mean, that he's talented, and everyone knew who he was. Yeah, yeah. He. Oh, even when we first recorded together, you know, the Teen Idols were really pretty much totally unknown because we did a demo together for the first album. Um, so this is prior to them even having done an album. It was the first time we recorded together. But the thing about, first of all, I, I mentioned running into these people that were just incredible. I mean, you just named two of them, of course, Zach and Philip, um, super talented guys. Um, totally. Very, very talented guys. And, and, and I love them, which is why they were my, also my roommates, you know, <laughs> these are people I, that were like brothers to me. So 
In fact, Zach named his son Oliver Massimiliano, just to give you an idea, you know, like <laughs> how close we are. Um, and and Philip lived with me for a long time, you know, and I I have a close relationship with his friends too. But I also have to say, separately from that, they're also very very good musicians, which is why I wanted them in the studio because I wanted someone that had an ear that understood music and how things went together. I I always figured this: if I've got a good musician that gets it with music, I can teach them the technical stuff, you know? And honestly, Philip already had some studio chops because his high school had a recording studio. Yeah. So he already understood a lot. Zach was um, pretty much starting from zero with me. But what I just said was, look, I'm going to give you guys the dummies approach. And they actually shot a video of me teaching them. Put this mic in front of this, (laughs) put it at this angle, (laughs) set it through this compressor, set it to this, you know, like, Sort of like using my equipment, this will get you the kind of sound that Sonic Iwana is famous for, you know? And I actually made little videos with them about that so that they could just watch the video over and over again and practice. And there were several people that were in that first class. Um, One of them was Zach, and one of them was this guy named Denny Muller, who um, later became the guy that ran the studio for Green Day. Um, But I taught them their first their first classes and Philip, I did the same thing. I showed him the videos. He, you know, he, they were already recorded by the time Philip came cause he came later. Um, but he also had an understanding of what a compressor does, what it is, what, you know, difference between dynamic and condenser mics. So he had a higher bar already in, in his experience, but basically I showed him exactly what I do. But once I'm out of that room and they're in charge, you know, there's always going to be a flex, you know, like, there's a certain amount that goes to taste, a certain amount that goes to style. But I feel like um, I got very lucky. I got some good people in there. There was also yeah. a fellow that was there for a long time, Philip Zumbrun, who grew up listening to all these punk records from Indianapolis. And he had a band of his own, too. I mean, they never became super well-known. It's all happening. Um, and he also had one called Highway Magic. Um, but he was a really, really good engineer, too. Had a very good ear and was also technically very gifted. Um, and I also, one of the things I, I teach, um, um, on and off, I'll teach audio production classes at Purdue university, mainly graduate students or students who are majoring in sound for, um, it's all set up as a sound design course for theater, but they have a really nice recording studio and I teach there and I, and Philip Zumbrun also took classes from me there (laughs) before coming to Sonic Mm -hmm. Iguana. So yeah, I trained a lot of engineers and another one that I, initially trained was uh dan volklinski also known as mr precision he was the first guitarist for rise against he was the guy who actually came up with the name rise against and founded the band um and he he learned from me and then he set up his own studio which is pretty popular now the bomb shelter yeah Yeah. um so yeah I've, i've trained a lot of engineers and yes yes that's different and some people might have been disappointed by some of the engineers i had I'm not naming the ones that I, that I don't think were great, maybe, but um, <laughs> we had some really good ones. Uh, Jeff Hansel, who knew some engineering before I met him, and then I showed him the way I did things, and he always had his, a little bit more of his own personality because he had a different aesthetic. He was more garage, yeah. but he went on and worked on some some records by The Killers and stuff hmm. like that, and uh, you know some actual big stuff out in San Francisco. Yeah. So we've had a lot of really good engineers come through. Um, yeah, and that helped me. But honestly, most of the time, <laughs> I was the main producer and everyone else was assisting me. Um, yeah. 
that's really what <laughs> the bulk of it was. Um, and the reason I needed assistance were mainly because we were running sessions sometimes about 24 hours a day. There were, yeah. I mean, no, I'm not really, I'm really, I'm not exaggerating. There were many, many, many stretches of weeks where we ran 24 hours. Wow. And even though I don't sleep much, <laughs> I couldn't possibly do 24 <laughs> hours a day for two weeks straight, you know, yeah. it's not crazy. possible. Yeah. Uh, so I needed some sleep, but we also had two studios for a while. Um, not now, but for a while there were two studios and I remember once, for example, uh, even in Blackout's recording in one and the Queers in the other, and mm. Philip was playing in both bands. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's crazy. But just just so just so we're clear, like I, I don't, I would never be disappointed with those guys recording me. I guess what most people want you, but as like you know, if you were able to say, well, I can't do it, but Phil from Teen Idols can, it would be like, oh perfect or you know the guy from 88 fingers louie could do it or zoinks it's just like even better like because you wouldn't know what you're going to get when you go there you know i mean it's what well, i guess what i'm saying is it's not just masses place you know then you got no, all these, yeah. other, these these guys that we looked up to because of you know teen idols records were fucking great sure and that guy gets to record you and you know instead of the initial reason why you would want to go there would be you know you <laughs> well yeah and I think I think you know pretty much the legacy of Sonic Iguana as a recording studio, which, like I say, because I'm shifting, is shifting, and it's changing, and it's going to become more and more mix and master based because it's just more what I'm doing. But um, th at the same time, even though it's shifted, and and it and there has been a definite focus on my end of it, um, there were people that were very important and. Philip did produce his own sessions. Um, I don't know if Zach produced his own. I think he always assisted me. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty confident that's true. Um, so it depends on the on the person. You know, some people actually produced full on records on their own, and some other ones were always assisting me. But even assisting me is a high responsibility because if I say you're in charge of this guitar track, well, while I go sleep for five or six hours, you know, you're not you're, you're not actually doing much engineering in the sense of no one ever set up a mic on my sessions. <laughs> like I was pretty, I was pretty, you know, I guess the word is anal, right? I was really anal. picky. <laughs> I'm going to set up the mic. I'm going to set up the tone. I'm going to decide what it is. I'm going to decide how it sounds and what the EQ is, blah, blah, blah. But you can punch it. So we used to joke that my assistant engineers really only got that title as a glory and that they were really punch monkeys. That's what we always joked. <laughs> Not really true. I mean, <laughs> but we joked like that just to be fun, you know, for fun in the studios, um, in the studio. But yeah, we, uh, we, yeah, definitely. Like, like you said, there were some really great people that were working there. But since nobody stayed the whole go, um, in the end, obviously, Sonic Iguana is basically my production legacy. You know, I mean, yeah. that's just by default. Then no one else was there the whole time, and. Uh, I did all the bigger records and all that kind of stuff, but we had some great people there and I really couldn't have done. And Dan Lumley was one of the best engineers I ever had too. I have to say, um, was another one. He worked there for many years as well. It finally drove him nuts and he had to get out of there, <laughs> but, um, well, don't blame him. It was really hard back in the analog days. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
you have to know how to cut tape and punch and oh my gosh and I, I saw him do things that most people can't do but um but really you know even beyond that like i also feel lucky like the kinds of bands i got through there you know i yeah. mean we mentioned the lillingtons they did a couple of albums there death by television which many people would consider one of the best pop punk albums of all time you know classic yep. sure did a lot of work with uh, Jesse Michaels who his band is definitely the number one biggest independent label punk band in history period you know um, they're the only one that went platinum <laughs> I mean that's that's it. they're the only one and mm. and he's probably a poetic genius I wouldn't I don't I don't feel I'm exaggerating saying that um, and I got to work with him quite a bit. We did an entire demo version of the first album there together, and then we actually did the entire Unity music, which might be one of the best albums I've produced as far as if I combine all my favorite elements. Like, I played on the album. Um, I played saxophone on the album. I produced the album. Um, I, I love the tones. Um, I love the songs. Like, if I go at that depth, like, it has a lot of mass involvement on it, you know, <laughs> and and I'm very very proud of that. That's one of the better ones. Um, but also, of course, you know, Screeching Weasel, The Queers, yeah. um, Smoking Popes. I've also been lucky, and you know, uh, Chris from Jawbreaker came and recorded there. He was my roommate for three years, hmm. um, so he used to come in and do stuff with me. He played on the Horace Pinker record. He also did a he co-wrote a piece of a Squirt Gun song and and did his vocal on that. Um, um, being the termites, which um, have their very own brand. I mean, that no one else sounds like the beating termites. <laughs> nope. You know? And honestly, I think the very best Ramones cover album of all the punk redos of the Ramones albums was their Pleasant Dreams. Hmm. Um, I'm not saying that that's the best Ramones album. I'm saying that they did the coolest thing that I've heard 
you know, covering it. Like it made it their own, but they still were very faithful and feels right. I'm super proud of how that went. Um, um, And also there's people that, you know, you probably wouldn't even imagine that I've been involved with. Um, uh, The guitar player who was the original drummer, he he was the drummer at the beginning and later the guitarist of the Lemonheads. He came and did stuff with me too. Hmm. Um, uh, And John Strom was his name. He was in a band called Antenna. Um, as well when he recorded with me um was he also in the blake babies dude yeah he was in blake babies yeah he yeah. was the the second you know because there were two front people of that band right it was you know hatfield of course julianne yep. hatfield was mm-hmm. the one people remember the most but the other one was john strom and yeah he was yeah. yeah he sang that girl in a box i love that song yeah so i mean i you know and who knows whoever would mention my name alongside the blake babies i mean <laughs> yeah it never occurs to anyone, you know, but I did get to work with people like that as well, which is why, like, you know, I was listening to the interview that Zach um, did, you know, and I, of course, you know, two people's memories are always different, but I remember him saying something along the lines of, like, I was a little shocked about the way he wanted to record the guitars for um, Who Really Needs a Heart Anyway, but I'm like, oh, dude, I did the guitars the same way and even mellower for the album I did the year before, you know, for Common Rider. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. you know, like, yeah, I... I did all kinds of sounds, all kinds of tones, um, you know, and, and I, I purposely built that drum room so that it would be very good with acoustic instruments like guitars and saxophones and everything along with drums. Like I didn't want a dead dry room. I wanted a very live reverberant room with no parallel surfaces. And I was really nitpicky about how I designed the room and I got to use it um, in a way that you can hear it better. Like if you listen to this is Unity Music by Common Rider or Who Really Needs a Heart of It Anyway by Big in Japan because we did a lot more work with the room on those two albums.
so yeah, I feel like the luck I had um, of getting to work with talented people was just incredible. I mean, you know, including getting to co-produce an album with Billy Joe from Green Day, right? I mean, it's just like, you know, and uh, when the copyrights did the drum tracking for the last album they did, the Report album, yeah, um, they did, by the way, the copyrights did a ton of stuff at Sonic. Yeah, Brown. oh yeah. I mean, um, and some of it I mixed, and some of it I mastered. Um, but Luke also trained under me. That was another engineer who uh, came and trained under me, and then did a lot of work with me. Luke McNeil, he's very mm-hmm. talented too. Absolutely. Um, uh, and he's got his own studio now. Um, so like a lot of these people that came there, they first came and sort of studied, learned how I did things. And then they went off and did their own thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, the copyrights last album, um, Mike Kennedy from, uh, all American rejects came in mm-hmm. and he was the producer on that record. So he tracked it, but I helped set up the drums and get the room ready with Luke and, and Mike. And then um, later when they were done with all of the rest of the stuff, um, they sent it back to me to do the mastering. So it sort of started at Sonic Iguana with the whole all the drum tracks. Yeah. Went off and did a little bit back with Mike and a little bit with uh, Luke. So a little bit in Illinois, a little bit in Oklahoma, and then it came back to me for the final step. <laughs> and that, cool. was, that was a pretty cool project. So, you know, there are there's some cool things I've been able to do um, in the course of the history of my production that I feel like yeah. I've been really lucky because artists and, and musicians of this caliber, you know, in Lafayette, Indiana, don't forget, <laughs> this, is, this is not a big city. <laughs> Isn't So somebody once told me, I don't mean to like break it up, but does Axl Rose's grandma live across the street or something? Axel Rose grew up in a house across the street from uh, Sonic Iguana, the longest term Sonic Iguana location. Hmm. Uh, there, okay. Like I said, there have been several locations, but the the one that we were in the longest um, for 25 years, something like that, the house across the street was one of the houses uh, he grew up in. You know where you are? crazy yeah so yeah I, I knew axel i didn't know him well i mean we i was in a cover band for like about 10 minutes um my senior year in high school um they offered me like 100 bucks a gig to play a couple of dances at the junior highs you know sock hops is what they called them sock hops um and so i learned a bunch of silly cover songs and that band that i played in for those few stupid things that i did which was like the only thing i did that was pretty much not punk rock as far as most of my bass playing and um i mean they were some they had some like stray cats and things like that it was kind of fun but it was still cover band right Mm -hmm. um but we played in the same practice um hall as um axel's old band called mank rage Hmm. and um axel and izzy were both in that band at that time crazy so i i'd met I met Axel two times, maybe three times, and he uh, made fun of me. And then (laughs) (laughs) what happened was we had a Rat Tail Grenadier, my first punk band. Um, When we were very young, I was 16, Flav was 14. Um, We recorded in a taped in-the-studio television station. And then they broadcast it as part of this like feature of Lafayette musical talent. Hmm. 
and it got it got played a lot of times and people kept calling and wanting to see it again because my brother was a 14 year old with liberty spikes and <laughs> i had i had blue hair um and we did songs like one was called i dig pain um you know it, it was really <laughs> weird and crazy and it got popular locally <laughs> but that meant that axel had seen it and so he's like oh yeah you're in that rat shit band <laughs> uh, rat tail grandeur actually not rat shit <laughs> but yeah hmm. so so yeah i met i i met him a couple of times but this is before they went off and became guns and roses you know it was yeah, like yeah, a few yeah. years earlier than that right. like maybe f four or five years before because that was 83 i think 84 something like that hmm. when i met him and I think it was 88 or 87, late 87, before you started hearing any word of Guns N' Roses, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I thought he was kind of a jerk. I thought Izzy was really nice. <laughs> <laughs> so you've, you've done you've done cool stuff. Everybody knows that. You know we talk about all of our favorite records. Most of them were, uh, you had your hands on a little bit. Um uh, So can we do a, can we do a sweet 16 of uh, albums sure. that came out of Sonic Iguana? Sure. Cool. Cool. This is Philip from Teen Idols. You're listening to the fucking dummy room. make some tough choices guys we just decided <laughs> we'd pick 16 oh, sure of our favorites and it, it reads like a fucking world's greatest top 16 albums almost you know what i mean <laughs> yeah jody texts me today and he's like how about if we do this with mass and i'm like yeah sounds great go ahead i'll just start throwing them at you and i'm driving home you know and it's snowing and I'm like, son of a bitch, uh, that's my television, you know. And I'm texting him back, and I, I just off the top of my head, they just kept coming. It's amazing how many records have come out of there that we love, not just oh, albums. You. And we don't even like love your biggest albums, you know. Uh, you know, our bubble is as that Weasel Queers Lillington sure, stuff, you know. Sure, I could probably but, um, guess by a bit <laughs> who you've had on the show. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let, let's do it, man. Round one. All right, so first matchup in round one, we have uh, something more dangerous versus not economically viable. Oh, my God. <laughs> right. This is hard right from the get-go. Uh, oh, my gosh. I, I really consider those two <laughs> brilliant albums that are underappreciated. Um, yes. You know, probably, you know what? I'm going to go for the underdog the one that I hear mentioned less and it's not because it's better. It's because they're both so brilliant. I, I'm going to just throw in my hat for moral crux and something more dangerous. Cause I feel like they don't get enough attention. Okay. <laughs> they don't get enough attention. I love that record. Uh, this it sucks. is a really great record, but, but, um, what do we, what do we got? We got Annie, we got million miles. We got, uh, um, uh, so you're going to have to choose. Oh me. yeah. I'm going methadones <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah. And I, I love that moral crooks record. That's yeah, the best one. It is the but, best one. 
like I said. That, well, that, yeah, uh, like I said, it's hard. I mean, I only chose it because they're the underdog here. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only reason. <laughs> and I, I don't say underdog because of lower quality. I say underdog because I don't think enough people have heard that brilliant album. You know, I, and I think people who listen to you guys would actually really enjoy that album, but they probably didn't know they should listen to it. So I want to throw a vote that way, even though I kind of figured the Methanons are going to win this shootout here <laughs> <laughs> yeah. between those two. <laughs> It's it's tough to go against uh, uh, that record. It's just well, the classic. And Dan Bapp is one of my favorite people of all time too. Absolutely. So, you know. Yeah. But yeah, something more. I mean, uh, Bomb for the Mainstream and Disconnected. Yeah. Fuck Teenage Atrocity. Th- that album is just classic. So. Oh, yeah. It oh. is, and it's like a throwback to sort of like a. Uh, even then, it was like more. It had more echoes of the early punk. Like yeah. it was less in the bubble of the new pop punk. It was being pop punk in a little more rebellious way, you know, kind yeah. of, I, I, yeah, it's, it's, it's great. It's, that's, that's why I can't really decide, but I, I threw it towards the underdog. <laughs> let, let, let me ask you one question about that record. When, the, when they're recording it, um, yesterday's kisses comes up. Was that originally supposed to be like an acoustic song, or was you know well, was that something that, that, that was, was a what studio they wanted, deal? That's what, uh, yeah. I mean, 
what James wanted to do from the beginning. He wanted to keep it very, very different. He want, didn't want to try to make it sound like a pop punk song. He wanted it to be the okay. song it was. And we stuck with that vision. Um, this That was an album recorded on analog tape, by the way. It was a uh, you know, two-inch analog. And there was one part somewhere on that album where I remember we had to do the old-style razor blade slice Uh, of course no one ever did one of those in my (laughs) studio but me because i was the only one who really had experience with that kind of thing but like i remember they were like scared to death and i'm like well i just gotta do this and then draw a chalk line and then i'm gonna cut it with a razor blade then i'm gonna tape it to this and it worked and there's one of those on that album somewhere but now i don't remember where (laughs) (laughs) but that's probably good because i can't hear it right yeah that it's a a cool song i just wondered because it's just so different it just takes that album to uh to a different spot you know i played sax on that album too really yeah it's on uh what is it on american suicide yeah 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 yep i think it's the beginning of that song yep. there's like a bum, ba, bum, bum, boom, ba, dum, ba, dum, and i played a i played two cool. parts i did like a harmony with myself and a saxophone part on that album alto or tenor alto on that one i've played tenor on a queers album i think <laughs> <laughs> cool. people don't even know that i play sax so it's kind of funny yeah it's a trip <laughs> awesome all right so how about the next matchup we have uh the zoink stranger anxiety or storm the streets wow it's a tough one um it's easy for me it's really really tough for me um (laughs) i'll go with i think i'll go ahead and go with storm the streets on this one because i think i think vapid songs on it are just really great um and because it took a certain ounce of uh ounce of meat out of my soul so (laughs) (laughs) because of that whole recording experience i mentioned earlier like with the snare drum right um so i had i have so many memories not all of them are great but some of them are really cool like for example when i mixed that album um uh, panic came down and he he sat there and was in the studio with me the entire time i mixed it um, which is one of the very few times that that I really got a really long session just me and Panic, and it's where we—I mean, we'd already known each other for years by that point. We'd recorded several albums together, but when Ben's in the room, there's a certain amount of audio space that's going to be taken up because Ben is <laughs> a natural leader, and he's constantly, you know, you know, in in the situation all the time, you know. Where at that point, it was like just me and panic in the room and i was mixing it and he was giving me his opinion and that was the 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 whole thing so it was a really cool experience for bonding with him too so i'll go ahead and throw that one towards that okay i'm I'm gonna go riverdales and i'm not gonna go uh, i'd love to go i love that zoinks record but i think a lot of that was just you remixed a lot of that stuff if i'm not mistaken um it was a mix of stuff like i can't remember all of it now yeah, it's like uh, the first 10 songs were like an actually, it was like a new record, and then everything after that was like singles and stuff, but uh, it doesn't matter. I love that record, but because it was less of an album, I'm going to go with uh, Riverdale's. Yeah. So. Yeah. Storm the Streets takes it. All right, so the next matchup we have, uh, Big in Japan, Who Really Needs a Heart Anyway, or... <laughs> Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and make this one official. Death by television. Oh, my God. You had to do that. <laughs> you really had to go do that. Oh, Because um, I think if you put any other album there, except mm. maybe Death by Television and uh, Common Rider, um, I would have probably picked 
big in Japan. Right. Um, that album, I think, sonically overall, is either the best or tied for the best production I've ever done, as far as the sound and the balance and you know my end as a producer. Um, does and really definitely, good. it's better than than Death by Television in that end of things. Um, but Death by Television, if I'm looking at the quality of the overall album and the songs and the the legacy, because I mean that album, you know, is still ageless and has yeah. tons of fans. And um, Fat Mike himself said it's the greatest pop punk album of all time. Um, <laughs> mm, oh man. Yeah. All right, Death by Television. Yeah, I gotta say, <laughs> Death by Television too. Yeah, I would probably go there too. Hey, let me ask you a question about that. Did you did you know the Lillingtons before that record? I mean, had you no. heard the first album? Okay. Well, I thought it was genius the minute we recorded it. Like as soon as I, they sent me some demo tapes, I think of those songs, and then I'd also heard um, the record after they because they when they first called me, I hadn't heard them. I'd heard of them, mm-hmm. and then they sent me. Um, some stuff and so i already thought this is going to be brilliant these songs are cool and i was envisioning this really heavy guitar tone i really wanted to make it thick in fact when he got there i'm like really dude you got to play this guitar and it was i had an sg um korean sg so it was one of the um not not uh, gibson but the epiphone sg mm-hmm. um but they're they're 400 it was called the 400 it was the one that was their s- slightly better epiphone sg and I take took all the pickups out, and I threw in some hot rodded Seymour Duncan's, and uh, I think eh, maybe that one was a I can't remember if that one was a Demarzi or a Seymour Duncan now, but I think it was a I think it was a Super Two, so that would have been a Demarzio. Anyway, it had hot rodded pickups in it, and it went through my Soldano, and like you're playing my guitar, you're playing my amp, <laughs> you know, and that's what <laughs> we did. So that was my guitar and my amp, um, um, and then and then the rest of it was pretty straightforward, I think. I can't remember now if Corey played his own bass or mine. I don't remember anymore. I think Tim might have played my snare for the drums because uh, I had a nice black beauty, like a really deep one. Um, but I think uh, I think really the the big the big tonal thing in that album is just that one thick guitar tone as far as the sound goes and then of course cody's voice but that's why this is a tough one for me even though i'm going to throw it this direction it's kind of like the sound of zach's voice zach's one of my favorite singers of all time you know period and i think one of my favorite songs of his that he's ever written opens that album right off the top i mean i think silver tooth is genius it's great um carbon dioxide is an awesome dark minor key punk song yeah um it's it's like sort of like the alkaline trio formula but amped up to some new level and it's got that guest by guest appearance by vapid on it um on the bridge i don't know if you guys knew that but um so yeah it's one of these things where this is a really tough one for me one of my favorite (laughs) records i've ever produced as far as as a producer either the number one or number two would be big in japan who really needs it hard anyway so i'm only doing this because of the legacy of the songs (laughs) gotcha Did, did you guys know i played bass on one tune on that album no we got to the point where uh, Corey's, you know, played all the rest of the album, but he got to this point where, you know, he just kind of got frustrated. And I think I heard you, you know, talk about this on Jughead's podcast, actually. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. if you play enough in the studio. Because you've been oh, sitting and there and you, and you just knew you could just nail it. 
Yeah, he's like, oh, man, oh, man. And he kept stopping, and he was like, he'd been playing all day. His hand was cramping up. He was tired. It was late, you know. Um, and he's like, he's looking at me. He's like, Mass, you already know this part, don't you? And I'm like, well, yeah, you know, because I've been watching you play it, you know. And he's like, how many takes would it take you to get this? I'm like, one. And he goes, <laughs> he goes oh, okay, well, uh, okay. And, and, and he goes, only one? I'm like, ah, oh, maybe two, you know. Well, we'll see if you want me to do it. And he's like, he's like, oh, okay, well, how long? And I'm like, well, just go to the bathroom and then come back and it'll be done. And so he went upstairs, went to the bathroom, got a drink of water or a soda, came back down and it was done. You know, <laughs> end of the story. Uh, but, so cool. but I mean, I'm sure he could have done it eventually, but I think part of the problem with that was he was really either wanted to, or at that point was only comfortable doing downstrokes. And a lot of, a lot of the, Ramon Z style influenced bands do downstrokes on purpose. But that song, um, which is brain damage, I think I need some brain damage is the one I'm talking about. Um it's it's like and it's really hard to do all downstrokes on a bass guitar like that. And I don't do all downstrokes. So I'm really comfortable going back and forth and making it sound pretty consistent because I've done that stuff with Weasel and everyone else for years. So um it was easy for me because it isn't as fast if you come at it from that angle, you know? Yeah. But anyway, there's your trivia. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Death by television. Death by television for the win. The next round is just as hard. I think the whole entire game is going to be hard like this, fellas. <laughs> but we have the self-titled Teen Idols versus the copyrights Mutiny Pop. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> it just keeps coming, man. Ah. You know, it's it's hard for me on many levels. One, you know, got to remember, I know all these bands, you know, and, and I have fondness for the people in the bands. <laughs> and on, on top of that, I love the music and, and everything else. Ugh, yeah, that is a really tough one. And I know that the teen idols debut album is their most popular, with most fans, but I really think, I think some of the songwriting as they went along got cooler and cooler in like experimental ways. Yeah. Um, that I enjoyed, you know, um, that's a tough call. And, but keep in mind, I also think that, uh, Luke as a songwriter, even, which is, this is a weird thing. How many drummers are the main songwriters? Right. But, um, mm-hmm. I think Luke is one of the most brilliant pop punk songwriters ever. Like his lyrics are totally quickly accessible and understandable yet, um, really powerful. So it's hard to be simple and straightforward yet not derivative and he manages to do that so oh let's go with oh my gosh (laughs) oh my gosh i don't know if i can do this um i think i'm gonna have to wait and see what you guys vote first (laughs) i'm going teen idols i love that the mutiny pop record it's great but yeah teen idols the first teen idol all the teen idols records are great but then you know what since classic since you two both voted Teen Idols, there's no point in me. Uh, well, no, I was going to say Mutiny Pop just to put you on the spot, man. <laughs> oh, no, no. You already chose. So I'm going to say I'm going to have to sit this one out. <laughs> <laughs> well, or I'll vote Mutiny Pop just to be the, just to make sure it gets its voice. How about that? I'll go for Mutiny Pop while you go to Teen Idols. Okay. Then we'll, yeah. <laughs> Teen Idols will take it. It's hard because keep in mind that... Um, even though I did work, you know, to some degree with a lot of the copyrights album, my involvement with 
their albums is a little lower because I'd already trained Luke. And so he was the main producer, you know, and I was helping with mixes and mastering and stuff like that. So yeah. I'm very involved in that team. That I, was on. I even did the pre-production demos, um, you know, from beginning to end, I did, you know, everything. So <laughs> like my involvement with the teen idols is much deeper gotcha. on that album for sure. It's an all time classic, man. Yep. All right. Next matchup. We have uh Mangy's go down versus the mopes accident waiting to happen. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, now you're really putting me on a spot. Cause I played on, <laughs> on that album too. You know, I played two songs on the mopes album. Uh, um, yeah. I played, uh, uh, which one's uh, not a word and don't know how to say goodbye. Yeah. So I'm kind of a band member too. Oh my goodness. You know, that's, <laughs> um, I'm going to go with uh, the Mopes because of my personal involvement being so high on that and being so attached. Yep. I'm saying um, Mopes too. Okay. I, I was going Mangy's just, I love that record. I love that band and yeah. For kind of the same reason, they're they're kind of more of a band band than Mopes. So. Yeah, I mean, you can't argue with that. And there's a lot of great songs on it. Yeah, they're both um, great. But man, Vapid has a couple of golden gems too on Mopes. <laughs> exactly. Yep. And uh, and you know, I was I have to say this: that session was kind of magic. You know, like I know that sounds corny, but um, we were all friends. Like. B-Face and I got along great. Um, and, and all of us were friends with each other. We all really respected each other and liked each other. It was a fun session. It was low stress. Um, and everybody really wanted to do a good job on their part, but there wasn't like tension or anything like that. You know, really nice guy like Jughead and, and, and Vapid and, and Lumley is like one of my very best friends. He's practically a brother, you know? Um, yeah. And he lived up the street from he grew up a block away from me you know that's <laughs> you know he's like as close to a brother as you can get you know yeah. um and and all of us got along so well in that second and like i say i also played bass on two songs of the album so i feel like i'm really invested in that one and i, I remember how fun the session was and um and i even i listened to some songs from it the other day and i was like wow this is a really good album <laughs> you know? so so i'm gonna go with that because of that Right on. Cool. Mopes, take it. All right, so Mass, this next one might be really hard for you, dude. <laughs> I know it's coming. So we got the self-titled Squirt Gun versus uh, Kamen Rider <laughs> Last Wave. Oh. <laughs> now, if you had made a Kamen Rider Unity music, I would have had to go with that. It's the number one most the album I'm most proud of having played on. Um, I think it's because I produced that one fully where... Classics. Um, I did some. I did the mastering. Um, I recorded one song uh, on that album, and the and I insisted on engineering the bass tracks myself because I didn't really trust the guy that was actually recording the album at the time. Um, and that was by Ben Weasel's insistence. He was like insisted to Jesse not to let me produce, <laughs> like if I'm going to be playing on it. Cause it was just that, that was the phase that Ben was in. He can, he can get kicks like this, you know, but <laughs> if you listen to this is unity music sonically and then play the first album back to back, I mean, you'll see what I mean. It's like yeah. very different recording quality. So, <laughs> um, and Jesse liked it better. Um, after we got done with, uh, last wave rockers, after we got done with that album, um, 
I mixed one of the demos because <coughs> we, we recorded demos first yeah. of the entire album before we actually recorded the album. And I mixed the demo and I, I, I said, listen to this song. And he's like, whoa, did you just remix the album track? It sounds better than the original. I'm like, no, that's the demo. That's the demo we did at my studio that we knocked out quick versus the one that we spent forever laboring on in that other studio. And so that's why we did the next album at Sonic <laughs> Galana. Because <laughs> we did, the first one was not done at Sonic Iguana. Um, it was, I mean, it was finished at Sonic Iguana. That's where we, we mixed, we remixed a couple of songs. One song was tracked at Sonic Iguana and then the whole thing was mastered at Sonic Iguana. But, um, it wasn't fully recorded there like this is Unity Music. If, you, if you're really curious, uh, there's a version of Signal Signal um, on Last Wave Rockers that um, was done at that other studio. And then there's the Lookout Freakout compilation has a version of Signal Signal that was recorded all at Sonic Iguana. And you could do a, an a AB if you want yeah. to. <laughs> <laughs> You could do your own little shootout, you know, as an example. Yeah. <laughs> um, but any rate, um, at any rate, uh, where I, d I did all the production um, and accompanied, I didn't master, but I was there for the mastering of the um, first Squirt Gun record. <sighs> but see, if you would call on a song basis, I mean, Classics of Love is pretty classic. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, if it's a shootout between classics of love and social, I kind of <laughs> lean towards classics of love. <sighs> oh man, Mass! I'm not trying to kiss your ass here, but I love that first Squirt Gun record. So, yeah. Squirt Gun. <laughs> so you're choosing Squirt Gun? Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, me too. Elaine on the brain. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll let you guys choose Squirt Gun, and to be the other <laughs> side, I'll go ahead and pick um, Common Rider on that one. All right. <laughs> so Squirt Gun advances. All right, man, you got to tell us just a little bit of the story of social being on Mallrats, dude. Were you thinking that like something big was about to, that was like the start of something really huge? Well, it was so weird because I was co-producing a with Billy Joe from Green Day. And um, Billy Joe and I were sitting in this room and we were mixing the Riverdale's first album. Right. self-titled Riverdale's. The debut album. And while we were doing that, um, the manager for um, Green Day at the time, Jeff Saltzman, they had two managers, Saltzman, and I think the other guy's last name was Khan, C-A-H-N. So they went by Khan Man Management, <laughs> um, <laughs> Saltzman and Khan, you know. But um, uh, in fact, I think at that time, not long after, the Green Day decided that the name suited the management team too well and dumped them for somebody else. But... but uh, <laughs> Jeff Saltzman came in and he was working on helping put together or produce a soundtrack for Mallrats, which I'm not sure the name was already decided at that point, but um, he said it was the follow-up to Clerks. And I had seen Clerks. And he, he's like, hey, man, I, I want to get somebody that kind of sounds like you guys. And when he said you guys, he meant Green Day, talking to Billy Joe. <laughs> and, and Billy Joe goes, well... Um, what do you think of uh, the Riverdale? He's like, yeah, yeah, well, we're already doing some work with Screeching Weasel. You know, I kind of know what it sounds like. I, I mean, something a little bit more pop, you know, um, with a singer that's got, you know, more a voice like yours. I think he was trying to hint at he didn't like this, the snarly thing. So, uh, Ben Weasel again. Um, and then uh, um, what happened was uh, Billy Joe goes, well, 
you should get Squirt Gun. And so then he's, he's like, well, who's Squirt Gun? He's like, well, it's Mass's band right here. He's <laughs> like, you really need to hear him. And he's like, well, what do they sound like? And, and Billy Joe had a cassette tape, because this is back in that era, right? right? He had a cassette tape of our mix. It was like a demo mix of, of social that we were, we were um, you know, showing him. And he helped us name the EP. He's the one who named it the first Squirt Gun EP because it's called Shenanigans. And then he used the name for himself later <laughs> for a Green Day thing, too. <laughs> but he named it Shenanigans. We credited him, but we didn't want to sound like we were kissing butts. So we credited him as um, basically Billy Joe. So Guglielmo for William and Giuseppe for Joseph. And then his family name, he was Italian by like going back to his grandparents. And the name was Antonucci, but they changed the name when they came into the U.S. to Armstrong. <laughs> so we credited him as... Guglielmo, Guglielmo Giuseppe Antonucci on the record. <laughs> but at any rate, he gave that he gave that a play right right there on the studio speakers. He played it for Jeff, and he was like, oh, man, this is great. This is exactly what we're looking for, because maybe we can use it as a part of a background scene to a later scene in the film we don't have anything for yet. And he was like basically saying, you know, you'd hear 30 seconds, seconds of it behind a conversation. He sent it um, to uh, Kevin Smith. Kevin Smith heard it, and he's like, no. This is the theme song for the whole movie. Some have to do, but money 
I got to talk to him on the phone. He's like, I, I want to use this for our main tune in the whole film. It's going to be the opening of the film. It's going to set the stage because, you know, the whole thing is about the social relationships between people and, you know, the the low individual against authority figures and, and, you know, oppression. And he's talking to me like this. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's exactly what social talks about. Because, I mean, it talks about barb caking fetus on her face. I mean, it's a pretty political song. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when I saw the film, I'm like, oh, well, it's a campy and kind of teen flick movie. <laughs> you know, I, I, it didn't feel like clerks to me. I was a little bit like, oh, man, this isn't exactly what I thought. But, but at any rate, it turned out to be a really cool thing for us because it exposed our song to a lot of people. We got to play the, the world premiere, you know, open for the world premiere of the film, which we did right in Lafayette before the actual opening in, in uh, Hollywood, which is really cool. They let us do that. Um, Kevin was really cool to us. Um, it definitely exposed a lot of people to Squirt Gun um, right out the gate because that film came out the day before the day after the first work in Elm. Wow. So it's pretty cool. Pretty yeah, cool awesome. promo. Super cool. <laughs> and of course this year he, we get into it real quick, but this year um, he tries to get a hold of you guys to reuse it. Oh yeah. It. Yeah. How the yeah, hell do you he heard not, about that? How can he not get a hold of you? How does he not, how can he not find you? I, I don't know. I mean, obviously the guy's <laughs> intelligent and the guy, yeah uses social media all the time. So I'm not sure how he doesn't know how to use Google, but, but at any, <laughs> at any rate, he put it out fun. there that he couldn't get a hold of us. And the funny thing was we had talked like a couple of years ago about him using social. So I didn't understand why he didn't remember that we talked about it, but I mean, he probably has a million things on his mind with the music yeah, product. Yeah. I mean, with the film production, but at any rate, um, yeah, that went out. And then I got something like, I, I can't remember the exact number, but somewhere in the area of 500 um, messages, phone calls, emails, <laughs> direct messages, um, my Instagram, Squirk and Instagram, my Facebook, <laughs> my emails for the studio. Like I was swamped with contacts within minutes of the time he posted that. Um, and within a couple of hours, um, I actually ended up talking to not him directly. I, t I called and he called me and left a message. And then when I called back, he was on another phone call and I ended up talking to, you know, some production manager for the film. And the original idea was to maybe re-record the song, um, like do a modern recording just to, ch you know, still the same lineup as the original. Mm -hmm. But then I, you know, between a couple of things, one, the guys in the band weren't super keen on re-recording it. Uh, Dan had actually redone the drums a couple of years ago because we thought that Kevin wanted it. <laughs> so we'd already done it in anticipation of it, you know. Hmm. But then Matt was like, I don't know. And, you know, keep in mind that Lumley and Matt and Flav have not been playing with the band the last few years. Yeah. The current Squirkin is this, like, super group. <laughs> super group. Yeah, it's, you know, Panic is drumming <laughs> and... Um, We've got Zach on the guitar, who's he's played with Squirkin since near the beginning. In fact, he was at the premiere, world premiere um, of Mallrats. He was playing with us that hmm. night, so so he's been playing with us since '95. Um, and then, um, um, of course, our singer now is Kevin from Teen Idols. So it's kind of like, well, if we're going to re-record it, it would almost be better to have it with the new lineup. But then, 
the main songwriter was Matt. So that seems weird. You know, so it was one of these yeah. things where we went back and forth. And then finally, I'm like, you know what? Let's just use the original. <laughs> gotcha. But yeah, it's in the new film. And it just, the, the soundtrack just came out 10 days ago, I think. Um, hmm. some, well, it was November 1st. November 1st was the release date of the soundtrack for Jay and Silent Bob reboot. Yeah. Cool. That's cool. That's cool that you got on that though. That's, yeah, yeah, it's really cool, and I got to, you know, um, eventually I got to actually get a hold of uh, Kevin Smith and chat, chat with him a little bit again, too, so we hadn't talked in years, and that was kind of fun. Um, so, all of it's a cool thing, and then a little bit of bonus cash, you know? <laughs> Never hurts. <laughs> Never hurts. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, so we got two more in this round, and then we're going to start burning through them, okay? Okay. So we have Love Songs for the Retarded. Obviously, the queers or Huntington's High School Rock. Oh, well, sonically, High School Rock is far superior. Yeah, um, that was recorded at like Sonic Iguana Four, the fourth location, which was had the has a really good drum room. You know that that's a really great drum room, um, and that was with Soldano amps and. You know, it was like a whole the, the sort of like the second era of Sonic One where stuff started sounding a lot better. Um, where um, Love Songs for the Retarded was on their amps, and they were kind of like junky small things, and um, and it was in a location, the same location where we did Social, and most actually where we recorded the first Squirkin album. So sonically, the drum room wasn't as cool, um, but there's no doubt that Love Songs is more of a classic um it's sort of like part of the canon of um (laughs) like if you were to make like make an academic canon of the (laughs) all-time staple pop punk albums i mean that would be one of them so absolutely yeah three yeah i'll have to go with that one because of that love songs yeah love songs takes it i think it was cool though with that high school rock that's the first album where the huntington's really sounded fucking killer you know Oh, I love that record. I just saw them play live. They just did a they did a show out there at Fest, and yep. um, uh, they were saying that uh, they just got done recording their first album in 17 years. So yeah. there's going to be new stuff coming from them, too. <laughs> yeah, yep. it's actually really good, too. Yep. Yeah, so that, I mean, it's a tough one, but I think just because it's the Queers, and it's the num- probably the most popular Queers album you just listed, yeah. you know, <laughs> so <laughs> how can I not put it on right. there? <laughs> Yeah, queers will advance. How about uh, the final matchup in this first round is Fun in the Dark, Ghoulies, or Anthem for a New Tomorrow? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> By the way, um, the word fun being the first word in that album is a great one. And I think anything that I've done with Kepi is always fun. Um, he's one of the best front man, men I've ever seen. Yeah, um, Absolutely especially when he's not leashed behind like drums or right. guitar or something, uh, a bass or anything. And he can just roam free. It's the most, he's just the most fun front man ever. He's got an incredible energy. He's really brilliantly, um, funny as a person. He's got great comic sense and, um, he's a very upbeat, positive guy. I love working with him. Um, but, you know, Anthem for You Tomorrow, you just named another one of the canonic <laughs> right. um, pop punk albums. So it's it's a tough one. I, I'm not sure which my favorite Ghoulies album is that I worked on. I'm, it's, it's, 
I would have a really hard time deciding. Um, I worked on five of them. Yeah. Um, hey, what did you think of that re that re record that they did a reanimation recently? Have you heard that? I think it's really cool. Um, I've just recently remastered the original, by the way, and it's going to be coming out soon. Um, cool. Hmm. The uh, I didn't remix it; I just remastered it, so it's not a heavy-handed change to it. But I think it sounds a little bit fuller and more modern of a mastering job because, well, of course, that came out over twenty years ago, you know. Yeah. Um, but the actual mix is the same; it's completely um, the original one. Um, which you know, when I listen back to it, I'm like, I could probably mix it a little different now because, well, you know, <laughs> you change yeah. with time. But let's see, I did Fun in the Dark. I did reanimation festival like you just brought up um you did travels with my amp travels with my amp ghost stories which yeah. i thought was a great title go stories right. <laughs> ghost stories uh just brilliant i love those <laughs> kinds of punny things um and then um uh i think monster club was the other one that i did and i love that one too um they did that cover of uh the daniel johnson song um daniel johnson's song devil town yeah um on that album, uh, I really liked the way that turned out as well. I think my favorite that I did with them was Reanimation. So, if I think if it was Reanimation versus uh, uh, Anthem, I'd have a tougher time. But in this case, I'm going to have to go with Anthem, even though I think sonically, uh, you know, uh, the the Ghoulies win sonically. Like if you're asking me as a producer, which one are you more proud of the tone of? I'm going to go with Fun in the Dark. But if we're just picking classic albums and going for right. the impact, I'm going to have to go with the other. Okay, Nate, what do you say? Uh, it's got to be Anthem. Anthem will take it? Yeah. All right. Another cool thing about the the Anthony Tomorrow, you know, is also that was the first time I um, met uh, Jawbreaker and got to work with Blake. Um, 
because he does that guest backing vocal at the end of uh, Anthem for Tomorrow, you know. Um, so that was cool. And it was also my first time talking to Fat Mike was doing right. recording of that as well. So like, met a lot of people that ended up playing a role in my life later because um, Chris Bauermeister ended up being my roommate later so, for three years. Yeah. So it was my first time meeting him was right there during the recording of the, the backing vocals for Anthem for New Tomorrow. So, you know, that these albums have a lot of significant connections to my life story as right. well. <laughs> yeah, when we were thinking about doing this, I was thinking, man, this is probably going to be the hardest one we've ever had to do. And that, and especially for you. <laughs> That's tough, you know. So, <laughs> Well, it's going to come down and we're going to figure this shit out. Round two. Right now, we're moving into round two. It's going to get a little tougher on you, Mass, but we're going to go ahead and start it off with Not Economically Viable versus Storm the Streets. Uh, so we've got Vapid versus Vapid here, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, obviously, Ben's got a lot of songs on Storm the Streets that are good, but I, I think the Vapid ones on that one would definitely, yeah. definitely resonate with me more um, on, that, on that album anyway. Um, I think Phase 3... Ben takes it yeah. <laughs> on that album, but you know, on this one, well, it's just that I think there's a couple of Ben songs that I think are some of my favorite ones he's ever done, both the way his voice sounds and the songwriting. I really like Last Stop Tokyo, for example. Yeah, I like um, that one too. It's it just, it, and it's, it's a cool place. It's like Ben got to this cool place in his singing that just really opened up, and I love the songwriting on that one, but. Okay, going back to the task at hand, because I'm getting off track again on you. Um, okay. Uh, I think I'm going to go with Not Economically Viable. Yeah, Nate? Methadones. Yeah, I love that record, man. Oh, yeah. All right, Methadones will take that.
Alright, so this next one's another tough one, dude. Death by television or self-titled teen idols? Ooh. Yeah, again, this is tough. Um, <laughs> I think... Oh, my gosh. You're going to get some it's, calls after this show, aren't you? <laughs> all your friends yeah, probably. are going to call. <laughs> well, you know, I'm really good friends with all these people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, all of them. You know, it's a, it's a, they all are really important to me, you know, people in my yeah. life. Um, uh, <laughs> but on top of that, you know, this is also just tough for this because it is tough, you know. Yeah, and yeah. That first Teen Idols album is, is a classic, even though, I like I said, I love a lot of their later stuff, too, I thought. Philip really came to some cool places in his songwriting. Um, but there is something magic about that first album. And I do love it. But I think I think I'm going to lean. Well, this, and by the way, I've got a, another set of things in my head right now I'm going to tell you. As a band, as a unit, the teen idols of those first three albums, um, um, you know, everyone in it was so powerful that's on that album i also as you can probably tell love kevin from the the fourth album lineup in fact i was the one who suggested kevin for the band you know when when they asked me who are we going to get to replace keith i suggested kevin so i love that lineup too but since we're talking about this first album that lineup was really solid every single member had their role um and you know had a, a certain presence on the final mix that's unmistakable because of the three-part harmonies so that's part of the reason it's hard for me to say um to lean towards uh death by television but just because of the fact that that album had this crazy impact um really resonates with a ton of people it felt magic while i recorded it it's one of the best guitar tones i've ever gotten um i'm just going to go ahead and throw it towards death by television okay nate um i love death by television but it's not my favorite Lillington's record. Um, so I got to go with the Teen Idols, man. Ooh. That record from start to end is un almost untouchable. True. I'm going to go with Mass on this one, and Death by Television is going to win it. Well, you know, it's a, it's tough because, you know, like we said, you know. It's because, yeah, like for me, yeah, it's not my favorite Teen Idols record. I like Pucker Up better than the first one. Like, I, I just think I do too.
Something about the the energy. Everyone's hitting their stride. They're more more confidence, and they're having they're sounding like they're having more fun to me. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I they've been playing a little bit longer, so they're a, a more solid unit by the second record. You know. Yeah. Plus, we did it one hundred percent at Sonic Iguana, and they were more comfortable there. Um, like where the the first one, we did all the demos at Sonic Iguana, and then we recorded the tracking at uber just because ben wanted to go and ben at the time didn't want to go far from home because he was having a lot of trouble with his agoraphobia and that's why we did it up there but nobody really liked being there as much they they liked being at sonic iguana they felt at home there so in fact they stayed there for months at a time you know <laughs> so yeah so sonic iguana was like a home for them you know so i think they also felt more comfortable in that location but but anyway, um, Death by Television. <laughs> Death by Television Advance. Now we have uh, Mopes, Accident Waiting to Happen versus Self Titled Squirt Gun. Oh, let me. And again, here I played a little bit on one and I played on the other one a lot and I wrote a lot of the songs. <laughs> so <laughs> the involvement becomes much tougher. It's hard to be as objective. I think sonically the Mopes is far superior because we recorded it in a better studio. It was like the second big iteration, you know, when I got the good drum room and it's got the sold, you know, Soldano amps and all that kind of stuff. So sonically there's no contest um, at all. Um, I think the songwriting is a little more inconsistent on this work on album because, you know, there was, there was three songwriters and, um, we had, we never played any of those songs together before that recording. The first time we ever played, it was on the recording and we didn't play them together, we played them separately. So it's not the same squirt gun that existed later. Like it was sort of like a. So I feel like because of that kind of stuff, and when Mopes was actually recorded all pretty much live, and they were all hanging out, playing their parts at the same time, having fun, and I played a couple of tunes too. We were just standing there, talking and playing and recording, you know, and it was really low stress. So there's a certain magic to that session that I was talking about earlier. I might have to lean towards the Mopes, even though, of course, Squirt Gun is my heart. It's my band. I'm the band leader, right? So, right. <laughs> you know. It says but something I think because if you're going to vote for Mopes, yeah. Yeah, I think I might have to lean for the Mopes on this. But it's tough because that Squirt Gun record is like really me very in a big way. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Damn. Okay, so Nate, what do you got, man? What are you going to go with? Um, I really like that Squirt Gun record. I actually been I listened to it quite a bit the last couple of weeks, Mass, Yeah. in, in anticipation of you. Um. Mm. Well, see if you guys choose Gorgon for me, then I don't feel like an egotist, and it'll all be good. Yeah, I, you know what? I think I'm I, I'm gonna make Jody uncomfortable, and I'm gonna say Squirt Gun. I'm gonna say Squirt Even Gun. I too, love man. that Mopes record. I love that. I mean, Baby Doll is just classic vapid. But God damn, that that Squirt Gun record is. There's some great ones on there. Laying on the brain for the win. <laughs> <laughs> I don't right, mind. So now we have. <laughs> Now we're looking at Love Songs by the Queers or Anthem by Weasel. Two big, two of the big ones. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? Um, they're both <laughs> classics. Like I said, these words are, like I mentioned this word before, they're kind of canonical, right? You know, But 
as much as as much fun as the queers album love songs through the chart it is and all that there is a certain lyrical depth uh which was born i think on i mean not that not that ben didn't already have it because he i think he already showed that in wiggle in some songs and also on my brain hurts but i feel like it's developed more of like a sound that's cohesive and uh, powerful. And just there's like that line um, from leather jacket. Uh, um, I want to, um, what was that one? I want to tell you what's on my mind. I want to bill you for wasted time. The wasted yeah. spit I left there upon your lips. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. The yeah. wasted cigarettes to quench your fix. It's like, they're really incredible lyrics. And I think that, that puts it over the edge for me, and I would I'd have to pick Anthem for me tomorrow. Okay, Nate. Hmm, it's tough. Um, I don't want to vote against either one of them. <laughs> right. But I I think I got to go with love songs. It's it's I can't imagine not having you know. Oh, it's it's like one of my top three favorite records. So I got to go with love songs. Yeah, me too. Not it's to take well, anything away yeah. from Anthem, Anthem, but I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you have to pick something. And they both are killers, so whatever. All right, so this will bring <laughs> us to round three. Round three. It's really getting tough now. Almost done. Yeah, almost done here. Now we're looking at not economically viable versus death by television. Oh. <sighs> That's again a really tough one. Um, <laughs> it is a tough one. It it, it, is, it is a tough one, really is because not economically viable is a pretty brilliant record. Um, again, I, I think here I'm kind of leaning a little bit on the weight of the historical import of the album, and I'm going to have to go with Death by Television because of that, and. Um, it's made this mark that's undeniable. You know, like I said, even Fat Mike, he was like probably one of the biggest names in punk rock history. Mm-hmm. Says it's the best pop punk album of all time. Um, so how couldn't it be the best from Sonic Iguana, right? <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying, I, I think it's going to be, I think there are leanings I have. Like, which one would I pop on to listen to? I, I I might play Death by Television a little bit more than Not Economically Viable when I'm driving around, but I'm not going to say that that's a lot more enjoyable necessarily. I think I love them both. Um, but I'll go with Death by Television. Yeah. Uh, Death by Television takes it. Because mm, that's yeah. where I'm going to. Yeah, me too. All right, so then on the other side of that is Love Songs or Self-Titled Squirt Gun. Ooh. <laughs> Sorry, well, okay. There's no <laughs> doubt about the histor- historical importance here. Um, there's no doubt in my mind which one is made the more significant mark, which is obviously Love Songs for the Retarded. Um, that said, um, Social as a song, um, lyrically, and, and some of the stuff that we did on that first album... I think is a bit more sophisticated <laughs> than, <laughs> than most of love songs. Um, but that's not to say that there aren't things that are just beautiful on, on love songs. Like for example, Deborah Jean, right. Is yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Perfect. 
that and that's a, a I think a, a again like sort of like a a little bit of a foreshadowing like we said before about another song I can't remember which one but like a little bit of a foreshadowing of future queers yeah. brilliance kind of like we said uh brady house for, for yeah. speech and weasel i think that's kind of the same thing that you see with love songs even though i think loves it's not my favorite queers record um in fact i would probably pick two others above it but um there's no denying that it's a landmark <laughs> so so like in a canon um so i'd have to say that as far as historical importance, again, if we're going to go with that route, like I've done a few times, it's going to have to be the queers. Okay. Yeah, um, I got to go queers. All right, queers will take it. Sorry, Mass. <laughs> it's just yeah. it's just too classic, too great of a record. Right. Final round. All right. Well, that brings us down to the final matchup. And that's going to be uh, Death by Television or Love Songs for the Retarded. <laughs> oh, Death by Television. Yeah, that's where I'm going to. Mm, I'll go Death by Television.
I just remember when that came out, and it just sounded so much better than a lot of the other records of the time. You know what I mean? It had this like well, heavy, crunchy yeah. guitar. You know, the guitar tone is the guitar tone is definitely like a standout from that era. And it was you know the Soldano with that SG with those hot rod pickups, and um, not to mention you know the way an instrument sounds is also affected by how you play it. Cody's an amazing guitar player. Um, very solid. He wouldn't, he wouldn't take too many brags cause he's just not that kind of a person. He's, he's a humble person, but the, the truth is he's a very good guitarist and there is no doubt. He's one of the most unique singers with a very identifiable voice, oh, yeah. with incredibly good pitch and strong tone. Even when he's hitting the highest notes, it doesn't, fritz out or weaken it's still just as beautiful and bell-like there's there's a lot to be said for for those factors and I, I do think you know even though it was a young band you know heck when i when i recorded that i remember i think i took them to chinese food for the first time they've ever had chinese food in their life you know um <laughs> and i don't think chinese is that crazy but they hadn't been out of <laughs> there's small town New, you know <laughs> newcastle wyoming so it's it's like it was like a a young band, but there was a lot of enthusiasm and even like, you know, Tim's drums, like he's beating the crap out of those drums. I remember we told him like, you hit that snare hard, it's going to sound great. And he really took it to heart and was beating the heck out of it. And and so even if the parts aren't the kind of parts you would normally say, wow, listen to the drums, but they do thunder through. Mm-hmm. So, um, there's all kinds of good elements there too. So I think, you know, how can you deny it? If, so many people have said it's one of the best pop punk albums ever. Definitely the guitars were, you know, a big, big factor in the tone of it. I like the way it sounds over the, the Love Songs album. Um, it is tough, though. I mean, like, you, you get to some of these names and it's like, how do you choose a better one? Right. <laughs> and, you know, you could do the same thing tomorrow and you might come up with a different answer. You know what I mean? It's all subjective. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, and like, you know, like I said, you know, I might pick a very odd one as my favorite Queers record. I'm not saying it's the best. I'm just saying it's my favorite. It's Monkey Brain. I I just love that record. I mean, there, I, I think she's starting to like me. Like really Tangerine. Sparse, yeah, it's like there's some really cool stuff we did production-wise in that, and it sounds so good compared to love songs. Um, I'm talking tones, right? I'm, right. You know, mm-hmm. um, and keep in mind, I'm also a little biased because that album, you know, Joe was a little more hands off. He did his parts and ran out the studio. And then, you know, he didn't even have lyrics for one of the songs yet, Monkey in a Suit. And I'm like, how about we call it Monkey in a Suit and make it about um, uh, George W. Bush? And he's like, oh, OK. <laughs> so a lot of that was assembled by me later. Um, almost every there's a few parts that he does do his backing vocals i'm not saying he didn't do any backing vocals but a lot of it was me and philip like he left and philip philip would go in and record a vocal and then i would go in and record a vocal (laughs) so so, you know a lot of that was me and philip working on it after he left to do like the finishing touches on it and you know i I, so i obviously it biases my opinion a little right you know (laughs) so close to it but right but yeah, and, and then you know there are some bands we didn't even mention that I, I, I love the Riptides. Um, oh yeah, yeah, great band. And there are a couple of albums of theirs that uh, this last one they did Canadian Graffiti, which I think came out beautifully, and uh, Tales from Planet Earth, which I thought was sort of like a Canadian Death by Television. I don't know if you guys have heard that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
In a full production, um, I think two wine press things, if I remember right. Now, I don't remember the names of them because it's been so long and I haven't, they don't come up that often. But um, yeah, they came down and recorded at uh, the same Sonic Iguana setup that I had when I did um, Love Songs and the Squirtgun debut album and Anthem. That was the same one for all those records. Mm-hmm. And I think okay. they were. They shared members, I think, with Meshuganas, if I remember right. Yep, yeah. Um, Meshuganas came and recorded, too. Um, then there was a band called The Fighters, which I think was friends yep. of theirs. <laughs> they all came, like, sort of back-to-back. And I think for a little while, if I remember right, Matt Skiba was drumming for The Fighters. Mm. I think the first time I met him, he was in The Fighters. Um, I could be wrong. But, see, I met Skiba as he was a big fan. <laughs> and of course now you look at him he's like it's crazy I, I think he's one of the best singers in punk too he's like one of those guys who like if i could trade my voice for someone's i'd probably <laughs> choose matt skiba's um and i i like his songwriting a lot too but um but yeah so those were cool bands and then you know like they're slapstick i don't know if you guys have heard of them but yeah they used to play here like every month they were like <laughs> an important band in that whole like uh um, yeah sort of post op Ivy uh, um, ska stuff. And then, of course, you know, the singer went on and he's in Lawrence Arms now. Right. Yeah. Um, um, the Smugglers, I love the Smugglers album. I don't know if you guys have ever heard that one. Oh, it's yeah. the sizzle. <laughs> yep. I really love how that turned out. Um, and and then I got, I got the chance to record uh, some of my heroes, like Zero Boys. I did a live album for them. 
um, and I wanted studio track. And then I did Toxic Reasons, who I grew up listening to. Um, I'm really proud of that record as well. Um, I played in a band you might not have even heard of. Have you heard of Torture the Artist? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, on uh, uh, Kid Tested put out a record, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and there's some. I like some of the, the tunes on that a lot too. But my best song I've ever written, in my opinion, is on that record. <laughs> it's a. Uh, it's called Razor Blade. I didn't. I had never actually quantified what's my best song I'd ever written or anything like that. You know about myself. I just hadn't done it. But then Luke did. Luke McNeil. He goes, "Hey, Mass. I listened to that Torch of the Artist album, and I'm like, yeah. What you think? And he goes, I just want to say one thing for sure. First of all, I love the opening song, but Razor Blade's the best song you've ever written. I'm like, oh, well, yeah. And then I listened to it again. I'm like, yeah, he's right. <laughs> That's my best song. It doesn't mean it's any good. It just means it's the best one I've written. <laughs> so so let, let me let me ask you this about recording bands. Um, give me a band that you've always wanted to record, but never they never never had the chance. Green Day. Um, that'd probably be my number one. I was supposed to record them a couple different times. Uh, 
they were going to come out and do an EP at Sonic Iguana with me. And we were already scheduling it. I'd already, you know, Larry, Larry Livermore and I'd already talked about the dates and everything else um, that they could come out. But then they ended up signing to Warner Brothers Reprise and doing Dookie. So it never happened. Um, that's one. Um, and then later on, when I was doing the Riverdale's album, uh, Billy Joe and I were talking about me going out and working with them to do something, like even possibly moving out there and doing some kind of a studio that they could use for all their songwriting, you know, to, to do all their demos. And, and basically that studio existed later called Jingle Town. And, mm-hmm. and the guy that I trained, Denny Muller, ended up being the one that went out there because I, I didn't want to move. <laughs> I mean, now who knows? Now I'm like, okay, yeah, maybe I should have done that. <laughs> but at the time I was like really dedicated to staying in Lafayette. I was kind of stubborn about that. Um, yeah, that's probably the band, the number one. And But there's another band, too, that I did get to work with, Alkaline Trio. Um, I worked with every member in several things, and then I did some stuff that ended up like B-sides, that ended up on a um, the Remains record, and then the extra tunes for the Time to Waste um, single. Um, but I really didn't get a chance to do like a full Alkaline Trio thing. Um you know, where the whole band was in there and they did all their parts. And that would have been another thing that I would have loved to have done, you know. I mean, and the reason I'm talking so past tense is at this point, <laughs> you know, where I'm doing mainly, you know, mixing and mastering, um, the idea of being the producer of a, an album that takes three months full time to do just feels like something. I don't <laughs> know if I have it in me <laughs> to do that right now. Yeah. You know I mean? yeah. Like I'm in a different place in my life than that, you know? Um, but, um, you know, who knows? I could do an EP or a single for them at some point, but I did get to work with Alkaline Trio and I did get to work with all the guys in Green Day, but never like on a Green Day album or a, a full Alkaline Trio album either. And that, I'd say I'd pick those two for that. Um, mm. And it's because I started, I, I think it's because it was a tease, but I also love Jawbreaker. And the only one I've, I've gotten to work with both Chris and Blake in separate contexts. You know, Chris did the bass for Horace Pinker and mm-hmm. he was my roommate for so many years. And then Blake, I recorded um, for the backing vocal for Anthem for Me Tomorrow. Um, at, at, not even at Sonic Iguana, that was at a different studio up in Chicago, Flatiron. Um, I was there to help you know make the decision on how to do the settings on the mic and the compression there was a guy that was on that on the studio who ran the board but um you know that's another band jawbreaker you know and there's a chance and i did get to master one thing for them i mastered one thing that was on the punk usa the seafoam green song and i did talk to adam um and blake and chris a little bit at their reunion show when they first came back um at riot fest Mm -hmm. and adam talked to me talk to me about sending me some stuff to possibly master for them. Um, but I haven't heard any more f- about that. And that's two years ago. So. <laughs> and when I saw them just last week, no one mentioned it. So I'm like, I'm not going to put pressure on them, you know, <laughs> whatever they got going on, you know, they let them do their thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, so you guys played fast work and played fast. What's up? What's, what's next up for them? It's well, tough um, when you have all these guys that are, you know, living in different parts of the country just to even think about. Yeah, and that's why anything. we still haven't done anything, um, even <laughs> though we've all, by the way, everybody in the band now is a songwriter. Um, and um, I really, I really do have to say I like Kevin's songwriting a lot. Um, 
especially when he's allowed to kind of like do his thing. Like some of the songs he wrote for Bullets to Broadway, I think are really great. Um, definitely catchy anthemic kind of tunes. Um, so he's got a really good sense of melody and he's written several pieces of songs um, where I think, I, I think it, by his own, by his own uh, counts, he has no one full song, but he's probably got, 70% of like six songs, something like that, five or six <laughs> songs. Um, and I'm, I'm really good at finishing tunes. That's one of my strengths as a producer. I've had bands come in that, we don't have a bridge. I'm like, I'll write you a bridge. <laughs> or we only have like the chorus. We don't have any lyrics for the verse or a melody. I'm like, I'll write it for you. Um, I had a band that came in that's actually pretty popular. I'm not sure if you've heard of them. This is Vetlana's. Um, they're yeah, a lot but, harder, heavier yeah. kind of kind of band like with a screamy female vocal but i produced two albums for them but they would come in and they'd have two or three songs fully written and the rest were just all the guitars and drums and they'd have maybe a title or an idea and then i would write the words and melody for the rest of the song <laughs> wow so i mean I'm, I'm good under pressure in those kind of situations so but i'm not very good at starting from zero like for some reason i have a really hard time starting but if someone else has started it like I'm so used to trying to be the problem solver as a producer that I'm really good at, you know, carrying it through. So with with the situation of uh, Kevin having these partial songs, I'm great at I'm, I'm feel great about the idea of finishing them. Um, I have two or three tunes. Um, Zach has several tunes. I mean, he's probably got <laughs> he's a nine machine. complete songs. <laughs> yeah, he's a machine. And um, we played one of our uh, a new Squirkun tune. We played at uh, Fast actually. Um, even though we didn't have the longest set, I'm like, no, I really love this one tune. He said the song called I'm the ghost. And, um, it went off really well with the audience. The audience really seemed to like it a lot. And it's a slightly different groove than, than older squirt gun, but it really felt good. Um, so, and then panic. It's a, it's a cool song. I, I, I've actually heard that song. Yeah. Cause he the, did a version like he was going to do it with big in Japan and they yep. never really finished, finished, you know, the whole recording it's a bit mushy sounding recording i'm sure you've heard the one i'm talking about uh the, um, the recording i heard i think it sounds great but you know yeah well it was like never finished you know it was like they i'm sure it could have been awesome but it was like one of those things where they never completely completely got it done with the mastering and stuff like that yeah but, yeah um anyway um yeah i and i think i think kevin sounds awesome on that tune he's got this really cool voice that kind of it's smooth and pretty, but yet it cracks <laughs> a little bit when he pushes it. Like, not in the sense of, like, you know, Peter Brady, uh, but in the sense of, like, <laughs> that sort of Matt Skiba kind of grit. I know what you so, mean. Yeah. So I really like his tone on that song. And and it came out really well. And then Panic is just a brilliant songwriter. Um, very Beatles-influenced. Um, but, you know, of course, through a, through a pop-punk filter, so it comes off sounding <laughs> like very poppy pop punk you know yeah. um yeah. and I'm, I'm heck green day are, are their favorite band is um a mix between ramones and, and beatles so it, it's kind of that kind of thing a little bit of a green day ish kind of thing that yeah. uh that you know i hear from panic but a little more delicate maybe but it's nice because all the songwriting four different guys you know contributing it could be a mishmash but it could also be the coolest thing ever so um <laughs> I really look forward to doing a record with these guys. Cause we've now played together for three years um, with this lineup being the main lineup, um, starting with the lookouting, which was um, in uh, January, like January 5th of 2017. So 
we're coming on three years that we've been playing together with this lineup now and no recording you know it's like yeah. <laughs> like we need to record something and we were talking about that and we're all really into it um and uh, uh some cool things happened in this last show for us um yeah so i'm really excited about the what we have in the works for squirt gun um you know and, and there's been a little bit of a talk that i've had with the guys you know like hey do you guys you know do you guys want to call it Squirkin, or do you you know when we do something new do you want to just give it a new name because it's all new except for me you know and i get that the queers and screeching weasel do that but it's the lead singer you know and it's weird for the bassist to be the consistent element. I mean, because <laughs> yeah. I'm a producer, I guess it makes more sense than it might in some cases, but um, I'm not the main songwriter. I'm not the lead singer. Um, I'm more like sort of like the, the leader, you know, and artistic sort of um, visionary of the band, you know, like the one that ha has the idea of what we're going to do, but it's not the same kind of thing. So I, you know, I, I run it by them and they've gone back and forth a little bit, but, they're like, no, we're cool with being Squirt Gun. We're cool with being Squirt Gun. I'm like, like, okay, but it is a whole new band, and maybe we'd be doing ourselves a bigger service to just change it, and maybe some people would be more excited too, you know. Um, so I don't know what we're gonna do with it. With it, I mean, there's still even the debate of that. But um, for now, um, everyone seems to be more excited about keeping the name Squirt Gun and going forth with like this new like Squirt Gun, you know. Um, um, which I'm cool with because Squirt Gun's old enough now and we haven't done an album in so long that it is almost like a new thing, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I'm fine with whatever those guys want to do as far as, as far as, you know, whether we keep the name or not. Um, um, but, uh, it, but, you know, like, like I, I could understand if they wanted to change it, you know, make it something that's ours, you know, like, uh, you're not filling in for someone you're this is your thing you know I want, I want them to feel like a certain amount of ownership you know and, and right to to uh to a stake in it you know not just uh <laughs> not just have it be you know someone else's band that they're filling in on um but yeah th so the show went well um the audience response was really enthusiastic we played a wide variety of tunes we played like make it rack which is like the really heavy hard one mm -hmm. um where i do that crazy bass solo i don't know if you know which song <laughs> i'm talking about yeah. <laughs> so um, wh whose idea was it to have panic sing yeah on, uh, oh that was mine was it? <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah he's a good singer so I, I thought it'd be fun and he's also really a very good entertainer you know he's got um a really good presence uh so i thought that it would be really fun to have like one change one change up in the set like that so we usually invite a guest up this time we had tim from the lillingtons play with us when we played yeah. at uh fast this time last time we played fast luke from copyrights um filled in for us and we played um uh black christmas which is like this big um you know fest that they do in detroit a couple years ago and we had um uh john john k who also had been in the coffin cats and he had actually also been in uh, pt's revenge and really band with kevin years ago he filled in on drums for us for that song um so we've had like some pretty cool guests pop in to do that and i really think it's a highlight of the show uh and we do a few covers that he does that for guest list um for mm. screeching weasel song um we usually do at least one common rider song because everybody in the current lineup of Scorpion was in common rider in one form or another. <laughs> um, Panic drummed on one EP. Zach 
did several live shows. The very first live shows Common Rider ever played, Zach played guitar. Um, Kevin sang a lot of backing vocals on This Is Unity Music. And of course, I was a founding member. So everybody in the band was involved with Common Rider. So I call it a semi cover. <laughs> right. Because, <laughs> yes, technically we're not Common Rider, but everybody here was in that band in one way or another. So, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so it's not a full cover either. Um, we were going to do a Rat Tail Grenadier song because everyone else in the band wanted to do it. But then we had to cut the satin. I, I nixed it finally. <laughs> so I'm like, now nah, we got to drop this one. But that was the song that was on that Punk USA comp. And I hadn't even remembered how cool it was until these guys kind of tried to talk me into doing it, which I would have done it, but we just had to cut the set somewhere. But we did include songs like, like I said, like the classics to love, which was sort of that sort of like a sort of mid-tempo reggae influenced tune. And then we had the really heavy, hard 
Make It Wreck, and then of course we had Social and Marianne, some of the songs everyone knows from Squirt Gun. So, yeah. and then the you know the usual bass solo songs because it is Squirt Gun, people know <laughs> my crazy bass lines. Right. So we yeah. had a few of those like Headache All Day, you know, and uh, um, Long So Long and stuff like that. So that went really well. Um, I had a good time, and then later I guested on the Lillingtons set too. So uh, it was great. <laughs> It was a great experience. I got to see tons of old friends I haven't seen in ages. Um, it, it's almost like a, a, a high school class reunion, except way cooler. <laughs> 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 Just real quick, how'd you get um, the Marianne video? How'd you get her to be in the video? Well, um, it, it's a really weird story, but and Flav wrote the song. Um, and, you know, when we were kids, we both had crushes on Marianne, watching <laughs> Gilligan's Island, you know, it's yeah, a natural, yeah, yeah. <laughs> natural thing. You know, you, it's either Ginger or Marianne, and we were more into <laughs> Um So Flav wrote the song, and then one day when we were playing it, we decided, man, this is probably the, the hookiest pop kind of hit from this second album, which was Another Sunny Afternoon. We think it's going to be the one that really should be the single. Which I'm, I, you know, now looking back, I don't know if that's true. There might have been songs that might have been cooler to pick, but, but that was uh, the one that we ended up choosing. And um, then at the time, I was dating this gal who was actually our 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 tour manager as well, and she also um, tour managed uh, Common Rider when we went on tour. Um, and her mom was actually friends with Marianne. Or, which was Don Wells is her real name, the actress. And also um, her dad, or her grandpa, sorry, worked on the set of Gilligan's Island. So she had two connections to, to Don Wells. And, and uh, so we just had her contact her for us. And when we did the video, we asked if she would do the guest, you know, a little guest appearance and get in the video with us. So um, it was really through my ex-girlfriend. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, <laughs> and she also inspired a few of my songs, "Burn for You" and and uh, the Razor Blade song. So you know, <laughs> uh, useful relationship, even if it wasn't necessarily uh, right. um, always in the the way you'd you'd want. You know, and sometimes uh, heartbreak inspires songs better oh, yeah. than uh, than when things go well. <laughs> Burn for You is one of my all time favorites by you guys, man. Love that shit. Oh, thank you, thank you, right? Thank you. I it's uh, it's one that I always assume that wouldn't i mean i kind of thought it could be like our single for the last time we did a video for that uh, for fade to bright yeah. um but i was like i don't know is this really the the one but it seems to have resonated with people and feel less dated it doesn't feel as old like when you listen to it it doesn't seem like yeah you know like some of the other stuff from the first album i think it sounds like a 90s pop punk album just by something yeah. about it you know that that vibe is there where where that one feels a little bit more modern so maybe it was a good thing maybe, maybe it uh it stood the test of time i guess yeah, it's got great <laughs> lyrics all the calls just add up to goodbye the line alone makes it classic well thank you it was definitely very real i wrote it as i was living it so um here's a little trivia um that <laughs> song when i wrote it i recorded it immediately as a demo because i wanted to play it for that girl um <laughs> You know, yeah. you know, I wanted to try to see if it would help change your mind or see how I felt, that kind of thing. You know, and it did. It worked. We got a few more years in the relationship after that. But the um, the person I chose to come and sing that demo was Kevin, who is now the singer for Squirt Gun. 
But mm. at the time, it was still Matt. Matt sung it on the album, and we had a right. guest appearance by Chris Rowe from the Ataris. That he does one of the loops in the backing vocals at the end um, on the album. But the original demo was sung by Kevin. So, <laughs> hmm. strange circles, huh? Yeah, strange circles. You know, it's funny. Speaking of strange circles, I remember when I listened to your um, episode with Zach. Um, that was the day that uh, um, Kim Shattuck passed. And um, oh, that hit me really hard because even though I never got a chance to really work with her, um, I did produce two versions of a song that was written for her, um, Surf Goddess, um, right. which both Screech and Weasel and mm-hmm. the, the Queers Please. did. And the, the lyrics are different. They're different songs. They, the chorus is the same, but there's different parts in, in both songs. Yeah. But that was written for Kim Shattuck. And... Um, that was my first encounter with her was actually through those guys singing about her. But then I, I met her um, not long later uh, during the big tour that the that Cub and the Queers and Muffs did together because I produced both Cub and the Queers. And so I, I you know, I was around on that tour and I met them um, all. And I, I, I probably spent more time at the time talking to Ronnie because Ronnie had also ended up marrying Lisa Marr, um, mm-hmm. who was the singer of Cub. And yeah. I, I produced Cub, and then Lisa Marr did a lot of backing vocals for the Queers and things like that. I, I've had regular contact with Lisa through the years. And, um, and of course, I knew Ronnie the best because of that. But then just by sheer freak chance, like three and a half years ago, um, she sent me a message on social media, on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> And it's because I was commenting on the same person, same band that she was commenting on. And she said, hey, these guys have been talking about producing this. You, would you want to co-produce an album together? You know? <laughs> um, and, and so I thought it was just kind of like a light joke, but it went on. And then I suggested, hey, why don't we do productions together? Like, why don't we be a little production team? And so we started making some plans of how we would do that and what we would do. And we were chatting about it for a while. And then we started playing words with friends together <laughs> and I don't know. We probably played a hundred games of words with friends. Um, uh, and, you know, we got to, we developed a really cool friendship and talking about these plans. And then about two years ago, it's like, Oh yeah, I know we were going to get together, but I haven't been feeling really great lately. So maybe later on, you know, we can talk about it some more and some stuff like that. And then less and less. And then I was like, well, I don't want to push her if she's like not feeling well or not into it or whatever. I mean, come on, you know, yeah. I get it. You know, I've got a life too. And she is Kim Shattuck. She can do whatever the heck she wants, you know? <laughs> so, so I, I didn't want to push it. We kept playing words with friends and, and every once in a while I'll send a little silly message kind of playfully back and forth, you know, um, uh, like because she, she kept calling me Dr. Mass because she knew I had a PhD and stuff. And so, you know, like we would joke around and I would call her St. Kim and, all this kind of we had, we had our little nicknames for each other and we still maintained French but I didn't keep pushing that other element at all and then I didn't hear from her at all like the whole last year um, mm. and so I didn't know what had happened I knew that she had mentioned oh I wasn't fe- she wasn't feeling great at one point but um, you know it was a shock when I read yeah. the news just like it was it to everybody was. even though I guess I got a little bit of a hint without really i mean that's not much of a hint you know not feeling yeah. well could mean you have a headache you know yeah, yeah. right I, I had no clue um mm. so it definitely hit me very hard too and i you know just much as i may have been her friend and we we met and 
uh, we had a lot of friends in common and we had plans that never happened never gelled but the fact is i was also a huge fan um uh, going back to you know uh, right after i first heard joe and ben talk about her and i picked up the album um the lucky guy song you know was you know made me a fan forever just you know hearing that song the first time and i bought happy birthday to me on my birthday alone <laughs> and no one was around so i i kind of had the same that just it just felt like it came out on my birthday so it was kind of one of those things where i was like oh wow it's cool birthday to me, and i'm buying the bus <laughs> and i'm listening to it alone um which is pretty much what the song's about is being alone on your birthday you know yeah um so i felt like i felt like a lot of connection with that and that hit me hard and uh even though that's not directly involved with my music it, it definitely was uh when, when I heard it come up on your, your episode and then you did the whole special and it definitely resonated with me deeply. So <laughs> I thought I'd at least throw that in too for anyone who's a Kim Shattuck fan that's still listening. <laughs> yeah, she was, she was something, you know, I mean, her songs were just, were just brilliant and, uh, definitely a huge loss. Oh so. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Unmistakably. Yeah. A hundred percent agree. But I have one last stupid question. Um, what's your favorite thing to record? What instrument? I mean, you're a bass guy, so I assume it's that, but um, maybe not. You know, this is going to sound like a cop-out, but I don't mean it that way. <laughs> My favorite thing to record is a really good musician. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose, I mean, yeah. I mean, you've probably seen some really bad things yes. or heard some really bad things. So. Many, yes. I'd say a lot of it, um, and I mean, if you want me to get into the class i actually teach a class on audio production at the university level and there's a lot of grad students in it and what i usually tell them is you want me to put production in a nutshell for you it's you are a poop sorter and they're like what (laughs) well you're basically like there's a lot of people are doing a lot of takes and a lot of what you're going to hear is complete crap um but in that crap there might be a nice little nugget of corn (laughs) <laughs> and Jeez. your job is to sift through that, find that corn, pull it out, clean it off the best you can and save it. And then having to keep pooping until you get enough corn that you can make a nice cornbread. <laughs> and if you've done a really good job, no one will taste the fact that it was oh. already previously eaten. Yeah, okay, that's terrible, right? But, that but sounds the, about the right, gist though. of it is... Yeah, the gist of it is that, you know, a lot of times, and I'm not saying everyone, when you have a really good musician, they play a great take and you say, wow, that was great. Do you want to try another one and see which one of the two is better and pick that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But the bottom line is usually what happens is, you know, you're you're getting a lot of takes um, so that you can have, you know, good parts for everything. Right. And, yeah. Sometimes it's more painful than others. Sometimes, you know, you're there, there was one, and I'm not going to name a name here, but there was one vocal I remember recording where I I had to average about 127 takes per song. Um, and that was just to get every note close enough to where then I could pitch correct it to the right note. Um, wow. so, yeah, that's, that's a lot. That's crazy. Um, but I meant every syllable. So if you say... Um, it's inevitable. That means inevitable, where all different takes. Right. And each one was pitch corrected. 
and then glued together. So that 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 becomes like laborious, and it doesn't feel like art. It feels like you're yeah. It feels like you're almost doing more of the performance than, than the <laughs> artist when you get to that point. Um, and I'm not saying that you know. By the way, even a good musician can have a part that's that eludes them, and then you have to work on a while. I mean that that happens even with very good, talented musicians. But if it's every single part you play, then you're like, mm, are you really playing this instrument at this point? You know. <laughs> um, or if you've got a great singer, a great bass player, a great guitar player, a great drummer. And you, they just go in there and play a take, put a lot of soul and heart into it, and it's basically great. But you want to maybe have another couple of takes just to choose from if there's a, like, a cooler fill or um, the way a certain um, accent got hit or you know whatever the case may be. Or maybe one run on the bass was a little smoother on this take versus that one. Um, that feels more like you're you're capturing a real artist and you're helping them make it a little bit better by being that you know, critical ear, you know, yeah, and I feel like yeah. that, that role is one of my favorites. Um, as far as recording any, any instrument, it's just a good musician. Um, cool. but as far as my favorite part of the production process might be helping bands finish songs or make them really pop, like helping suggest a harmony or maybe saying, Hey, you know, this last chorus, why don't you change the, the melody on this last line a little bit, um, to really bring it up to like a climax, um, the second or third to the last line, let's go to this higher register and then end here. Um, and, you know, things like that sort, or maybe like, hey, let's drop a chord change here instead of just doing um, G, D, and C on this one verse. Let's all of a sudden drop down to the E minor, you know, and um, pump up on the E minor, you know, do E minor and and then F sharp, and then G, instead of just going to G, you know, just to kind of give it a little bit of something different. Those kinds of things where you're suggesting counter melodies and all that in the production is my favorite thing. Um, as far as me playing as a bass player, I just love coming up with some cool riff, and um, and uh, I felt challenged in the past, I think, um, I don't know if you saw my post recently about it, but um, when I was touring with Common Rider, um, this is as a musician, something that really kind of like got to me. And I usually don't let things get to me. Cause I, I think I mentioned before, one of my favorite albums I've ever done in any way is this is unity music by common writer. I'm really proud of my bass lines. I think the parts are cool. They're counter melodies. They support the tunes, blah, 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 blah. But over and over on the tour for that album, I had people coming up saying, well, you're not as good as Matt Freeman. <laughs> I'm like, well, what does that have to do with anything? He's in Ranson. He played in Op Ivy. I'm playing in Common Rider. We're like more of a mid-tempo, melodic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, not the same thing. Reggae influence band, not a ska punk band that plays at full tilt. You know, <laughs> and like, what does that have to do with anything? He's like, well, yeah, but he's better. Like, well, how do you know? You just you're saying my parts are, <laughs> are not as fast. You know. So I got so irritated by the end of that tour that when I went to do the next Squirkin album, which was Fade to Bright, and Flav had a song. I'm like, you've got to leave a big hole here for me to do a bass solo. He's like, what? Like, yeah, full-on <laughs> bass solo. I'm just going to rip like you've never heard. I'm going to slap into the bass. Try to make Maxwell murder sound simple. You know? Right. He's like, okay, Mass, do you really want to do that? I'm like, yes. <laughs> and so I played a part that was at the very edge of what I could even possibly do. Uh, it took me forever to practice it and get it down. Um, and I try to do the kinds of things that I feel comfortable doing so I can do them really fast. 
but maybe for someone else it might not be because it's not their kind of playing. And I try to do that as fast and all the way up and down the neck from the low E all the way up to the high end of the neck on the G string, you know, to, to be the craziest wild part I could possibly write. And, um, and it was only because I got so tired of being compared to Matt Freeman. I wanted to say, yeah, well, what about this? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> but that said, I think Matt Freeman's a better bass player. <laughs> I don't know, man. But I don't need everyone to tell me it. Damn it. <laughs> I'll He's take a little you too over busy. that guy. Yeah. <laughs> He's a little too busy for my ear, but uh, yeah. So, so one last quick thing that I gotta ask, since we're talking about this, people that maybe can't play very well, has there ever been a time where a band has, you know, driven into the Sonic Iguana and they just sucked so bad that you just kind of said, "You guys can't do it." I mean, just kind of <sighs> like you, you got to come back later. This is gonna. This is a waste of your time and money. There have been situations that bordered on that um, where things like that were discussed. Um, well, for example, um, in general, I think one of the hardest roles to fill in a band um, is, well, there's two. One is the lead vocal and the other one is the drums. Um, the lead vocal is the most important because that's what most people hear. Like, even if you take it to someone who doesn't know, um, um, you know, anything about music, they've never really listened much to music. And I, I would usually tell bands, I'd say like the equivalent would be like taking it home to your grandparents. And maybe if your mom has a sympathetic ear and listens to it, what would she think? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and they're going to pick out the vocal every time because that's the voice. That's the one with the words. That's what they can relate to. It's hard to relate to an electric guitar if you're not an electric guitar. You know, it's a different thing. Mm -hmm. It's if you're a guitar player, sure. You know, but if you're the average Joe, you're going to listen first to the vocal. So that's the hardest. But the other one is the drums. And if the drums aren't on time, they don't need to be slickly played. They don't need to have crazy fills. They don't need to have anything but this. Be on time and be relatively consistent in how they're played. That's it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that's what they need to be. But for some drummers, that's a challenge, and they just insist on playing crazy fills all over the place that they can't quite play. <laughs> and what you get then is this thing that makes people feel seasick. And so there have been times where I've had to spend, you know, two weeks recording drums when the band only planned to record for two weeks. Um, and I, at that point, I'm like, well, you, really, you've got a couple different choices here, you know? Either have someone else listen to how the drum parts go and drum it, you know. In other words, Lumley, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is what the Riptides ended up doing. They're like, we'll just tell Lumley the parts and he'll go in and knock them out in the take, you know, which is true. That's what he does, um, and he can, you know. You show him the song one time, he'll learn the parts and he'll lay it a perfect take, you know. Um, and even if I spend a week recording a, a drummer where he spends one day per song, it'll never sound as good because that's a patched together pastiche of a bunch of takes of right. someone who still isn't the greatest drummer. So you're getting the best of a, you know, best pieces randomly of a, you know, weaker drummer. Or if you get a good drummer going in there and do it one nice solid take, it's always going to sound better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I've had a few situations like that where I had to talk reality to bands saying like, look, you know, if you want this to be at any level of consistency good, you have to do something different, you know. Uh, 
And I remember the very first time I ran into that situation was not when I was producing. It was when I was an engineer and I was assisting a guy named Paul Mayhern. He sang for a band called the Zero Boys way back, a punk band, one of my favorite punk bands of all time. Um, Really, really great. They're also a big influence on on Ben Weasel, for example. Um, uh, Really great melodic punk rock. Um, But he also was a producer and he went on to produce like John Mellencamp and Iggy Pop and... um, (laughs) Blake babies and stuff like that. Um, just lots of much bigger acts. Um, you know, very, very slick, high level production. Um, but I was assisting. I was like, I was first engineer. He was producer and it was a major label album for this band. Um, I don't want to rat them out, so I won't name the band, but it was a major label album. And he said, okay, Mass, we've got all the tones. I'm, I'm cool with it. Are you cool with it? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And he goes, look, I'm going to go, uh, he had some stuff to do with his family, and he had to run a couple of errands. He says, look, I'll leave you alone for six hours. Track as many drums as you can. You know you know the songs. I trust you. Like, okay, cool. So he goes away, and I'm recording all this stuff. Um, and I'm like, after like the first song or two, I'm like, you know, because I'm just trying to get the basic track down. I'm like, man, this drummer is just not sounding like the last album, because they had a top 40 hit on the prior album, you know? not sounding like that just not not really cutting it it's it's weak it's not solid on the click you know it's he's kind of with the click but just sort of you know (laughs) and i'm like it's not major label slick right right and so paul comes back and he's like well how's it going and i'm like well you know let hey guys take a break i'm going to talk to paul and play him the tunes and so they're like all outside smoking I, i tell him what i think and then he plays it back and he goes holy crap you're right this doesn't sound anything like the album um and then he goes, hey, can we try this one song again? A couple of takes on the drums. I really want to give it a shot. And the drummer goes in and does it again with a click, like you know, four or five, six takes. And he's like, he just turns to me and goes, this guy just can't drum like that. He says it just like that real loud. And he calls the whole band in and he goes, look, I don't know what you guys did on the last album, but I can play you the songs and it's not you drumming. And he's like, what do you mean? I drummed in all the songs. He goes, no, dude, there's no way. This is not you. You can't drum like this. Um, <laughs> So you have two choices. We hire a session drummer for the singles, the songs that could be singles, the two or three songs that could be singles. We'll hire a session drummer or we'll put a drum machine on them. And then we'll kind of hack through the rest of them the best you can possibly muster. <laughs> and we'll keep those. <laughs> That's the way he told them, right? <laughs> Damn. And I remember the time thinking, man, this isn't cool. You know, It should be a document of how the band is. It shouldn't be like, you know other people coming in and doing it or having drum machines take over. And I felt like really torn, like with this punk ethic. But as time has gone on, I'm like, no, you want the song to sound as good as possible. And it's not fair to the rest of the band. If you've got someone that's really dragging it down, you know, you've got to start making some kind of concession, like either simplify your parts. So they're straight and easy or just say, okay, dudes, I'll play the songs live, but someone else is going to drum or, you know, but somewhere you got to, put the good of the album the good of the song the good of the band above the individual ego you know you have a one member of the band eating up two full weeks of studio time um and everyone else has got two days to record every other part you know like when the most important part is what the lead vocal and you're cramming it into the end like you know what i'm saying i yeah that's that's what i've had that situation happen um that's and it's been tough so i usually just let the band decide but i say this is what i think you know i'm I don't think it's going to work playing the parts the way you want to play them, you know? Mm. And they're like, couldn't, well, couldn't we just take the best take and just go with it? I'm like, well, sure, but you want my name on it? 
<laughs> you know? Yeah. No, like, you know, who's going to, you know, Mass said that was a good enough take. I'm like, come on. <laughs> like, like, you know, you got to start, you know, thinking about this, you know, like you've come all the way to record with me and you want my opinion. I'm giving you my opinion. <laughs> and, yeah. and some bands, you know, have, have come to cool places like Riptide's just say we're recording. It's going to be damn lonely drumming, you know, uh, um, other bands will say, look, you know, I've, I'll play guitar on the rhythms, but I know I can't play the lead the way I want. So we'll invite whoever Mass thinks is a good guitarist to come in and do the lead guitar. You know, we've had that happen a lot of times. Um, we've had albums where um, two members of the band are playing and they're trying to match something and maybe one guitarist can't do the mutes and they're saying, hey, look, I can't do these downstroke mutes. Will you do them for me? You know, and they fill in for each other. For the good of the album, they'll cover each other, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that's important. I think in the end, it's the teamwork and putting the band and the album above anyone's individual ego, which is tough, you know, because everyone wants to be a part of the band they're in. But so, yeah, I, I've run into that. Um, I'll say, though, that the be the best bands or the most, you know, the, the bands that turn out to be great usually turn out to be great for reasons, you know? <laughs> yeah. One of those reasons can be great musicianship. Like Green Day, those guys can play their instruments, you know? Like... Yeah. I've had young bands go into the studio and work with me, and they're like, yeah, well, Green Day would just do this, but I'm going to throw in this, da -da 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 -da. and Green Day would do this, but I'm going to throw in this little <laughs> guitar lead that goes, -da 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 -da. I'm like, well, you know what Green Day does is they actually play everything right, and they play it solid. <laughs> <laughs> they don't just noodle and mess it up. They play it solid. You know, That's why Green Day is great, because they play everything they do perfectly. <laughs> you know? yeah. I mean... I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to say that Green Day is the best band of all time and make anyone feel bad, but they definitely are one of the greats of all time. And it's because they really are serious about their music. They're not just hacking away, you know, it's not just for fun. They want to create what they can what they consider to be great art, you know. Um so yeah, that that has been an issue. And even for me, like I don't always follow my own advice. I shouldn't be noodling around on the bass like I do. Darn it, you know, keep it simple. <laughs> And funny enough, like when I write songs, Burn For You has no crazy bass line. It just follows the guitar. Um, that song that I said was probably my best song. My bass just follows the guitar and razor blade, you know, but, <laughs> but then I'm like, ah, oh, I should noodle on this here, you know, <laughs> because it's part of Scorcon's thing is to have those bass leads, you yeah, know, yeah, so yeah. You know, it's part of our thing, our little shtick, whatever you want to call it. And I know that people come to the show, like when I played that last show um, at Fest, that bass line, that my bass solo was coming up on Make It Wreck. And every time that comes up, I panic because I know it's hard. It's, you know, it's, like, <laughs> it's at the edge of my ability, right? Don't fuck and, up. Don't fuck up. Yeah, Don't fuck that's up. exactly what I'm thinking. <laughs> and um, this last time, this has never happened before, even though we toured on that album and everything. Um, when I came to the part where the bass line was about to come up and I was getting ready to, to step to the front of the stage to do that part, I noticed at least seven people's phones going up <laughs> with their video. They're turning their video on to watch me do the bass solo. I'm like, oh my God, you know, the pressure was crazy. And for some miracle, I actually played it okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's no such thing as perfect, but it was okay. It, it, it kind of, I don't, I don't know if you've seen the video of it. I saw the video, yeah, yeah. It, it's pretty close. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's good. <laughs> And so I was like, oh, my God, thank goodness, you know, because I, you know, I was like, this is going to be it. You know, everyone's got their cameras out and I'm going to 
you know, completely destroy this thing in a bad way. It's going to be like a disaster. I'm going to play the wrong notes. You know, I was scared to death, but it actually worked. So once in a while, things go right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mass. Um, of course, you're you've created uh, this legendary studio that has just pumped out hit after hit for our uh, for our little bubble. So we appreciate that, and we appreciate you uh, giving us some time tonight. Yeah, Mass. Thanks so much, man. This was fun. Thanks, man. Thank you. I uh, I enjoy listening to your show, and uh, <laughs> cool. Um, yeah, I mean, it's great because it feels like I'm listening to like my pe- blast from my past half the time. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, anytime you want to come back, just uh, give us a shout. Yep. Thank you Open so much. Door. It's been great being on. Thanks, man. Thanks, man. All right. See you later. Have a good one. This is Dan Bappett from Dan Bappett and Cheats, and you're listening to The Dummy Room. All right, man. Uh, legend dude, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, he's had his hands in almost everything we love, dude. You know? Yeah. Or yeah, I got to ask you. the vast you majority of it. So, I didn't, I didn't want to embarrass myself in front of him, but did you know that Surf Goddess was about Kim? I did. Did you? I didn't but know that. I, don't, I only makes sense found now. that out, like, recently. <laughs> I think in the last few months someone had mentioned that. To huh. me, yeah. I thought it was you, but I guess it wasn't you. No, it wasn't me. It makes sense, man. So that's cool. I didn't know that. So yeah. Um, and then I learned um, a new term, honky mid. <laughs> yeah. I've never heard that before. So. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, man. But uh, yeah, Master Genie. Um, what else are you gonna say about the guy? You know. Yeah, that was great. It's, yeah, it was, it was. It was a lot of fun, and some of the stuff we talked about. Um, off after you know Teen Idol stuff and stuff, yeah. and his own flooding and of before, the studio. <laughs> the beforehand shit really blew my mind. Yeah, but yeah, um, cool guy, super nice of him to uh, stay up really late with us. <laughs> yeah, really. So, so but um, hey he, man, where is he at? The East Coast. Uh, he's in Indiana, dude. So is that Eastern time though? Yeah, that that Eastern time thing. Like okay, it's so right he's at an like, hour ahead of us. It's almost 1, yeah. a, 1 a.m. here, so for him, it's almost 2 a.m. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's some dedication. So, right yeah, yeah. So that's awesome. But um, I got to get up early, or actually, I probably just have to stay up all night tonight because I got big, big day tomorrow. So yeah. Uh, windowsill, Jagger Holly, and laid back stuff. Right on. So I got to go, man. All right, well, a quick thanks to Mass for coming on. Thank you for listening, everybody, and uh, meet us here next week. We'll do this again. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Dummy Room. Bye-bye.